So, anyways, so I, I typically do intros now, Jenny, but for yeah. just in case I do a shitty intro, I'll re- people don't hear what you say, they hear what you keep saying. So, Jenny Aguilar, uh, I first connected with on MMA because she knew this rare, unreleased Pete Rock produced <laughs> album. And that, no, like, I, I felt like I was one of the few people that actually heard it, and it was I and I. And, yeah. And I was like, "Oh, she seems pretty cool," and then, <laughs> and then I, I would like, I would like your stuff here and there, and then I disappeared from from Facebook for a while, um, to like actually understand what I was doing, running a business and everything. And then now that I I got a hang of that and the season's slowing down, I came back and hung out with Hunter, and I I, I listened to your podcast with Hunter, and Hunter mm-hmm. um said I should have you on. Because we both talk about the arrogance of man, um, right? <laughs> but there's there's a lot of fascinating stuff. I mean, like it, it seems like uh, we are if we were in the same region, we'd be in a similar crowd. I mean, so my Ohio mm-hmm. GSD crew, uh, they're all about uh, midwives, um, and I I don't think they're as hardcore because they didn't grow up uh, they didn't grow up with the Maharashi school. Right. And uh, so it's, it's, there's a little bit more hippie than you than. Uh, I have legit hippie, like a certification card that I carry. <laughs> it's legit. But it's, it's not legit in the sense that <laughs> when I think of hippies, you actually aren't saying, I wish everybody would just take care of me, man. Like, you know what I mean? No, it's like you not and, at all. <laughs> you and John are both entrepreneurs. You and you mm-hmm. and, and John's your husband. And, and you guys both look to provide for yourselves. And you guys have really just, you've carved out your own um, world for yourselves, which mm-hmm. I think is Definitely. really cool. Um, and it wasn't easy either. No. That's not easy to do. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm experiencing that right now myself. Um, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... Um, Sorry, my dad just called me, and I, I guess I just butt-dialed him, so sorry for nothing. He's going to be worried about me. Um, right. Are you alive? Yeah, yeah. He's going to be like, you all right, son? You're calling me early. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so I wanted to I wanted to have you on because I'm trying to get more involved with the MMA community because I think there's a lot of similarities within the mm-hmm. community. There's a lot of people that I, I, it was interesting enough that I found that I have similarities that I did. And I thought that was that was interesting because, you know, I I thought Hunter was funny because he trolled libertarians and hardcore anarchists mm-hmm. and pretty much anybody that's <laughs> hardcore hardlining to an ideology, and I and I kind of felt like that too. It's like, yeah, I, I definitely lean at these ways, and I and I definitely would consider myself one of these things. But then when I meet more of these people, it's like, no, I I'm more into people. And there's not really a label for it, which is good. I'm more into people that just kind of carve a world out for themselves. And I think, you know, oh yeah, the GSD crew, like we're we're um, my buddy, the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, um, mm-hmm. he's coming in town Wednesday, and then we have Hogtoberfest where we're gonna I'm gonna butcher my own hog and uh, do oh, some charcuterie really? and stuff. Yeah, so that's the way. Yeah, that's the way. I, that's the way we roll here in the in in the that's foothills awesome. of Appalachia. Um, but so, but there's similar things. I mean, we've, we've, we've really connected with like, uh, Michael, he's got a, a Rocky mountain crew and it's this guy, Daniel Freeman and, um, Benton McKibben and, and, uh, and there's, there's some, there's some other people too, but it's like, okay, so we're all, 
It's like we all have these similar values, but we all just kind of came from a, a different culture within the United States. And I think it's it's interesting. So many that, different cultures, yeah. Yeah, and and so I I I you know I see similar things, um, you know, with with you and you know, obviously our our terrain's a lot different. You know, if we grew plants, it'd be a lot different plants. Um, and you were you were talking today about what allergies you have in the fall, and I'm like, well, you're in California, so I have no fucking idea because right. I don't hang out there. It's a totally different climate than where I'm at. So if you were here, well, and ev- everything grows here. There's so much that grows here, and the uh, it's a Mediterranean climate near mm. Santa Barbara, so um, you can overgrow things during the winter too, and people do. Um, and our farmers markets are amazing. Um, I have a pomegranate tree out back, and that part's awesome, but again, there's a lot of pollen and a lot of plants that throw off pollen late in the season. And um, but yeah, the access to fresh food is maybe unparalleled from anywhere I've lived, and I've lived in a lot of places in the West. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty great. I think. Um, I mean, I would like to have more people here look at what crops you can actually grow in the winter time, and I think there's a lot different of winter fresh fresh food, and it's something I'm going to try to dabble with. Like I need to get some kale. I mean, sometimes when we get, you know, just feed of snow, you know, that's not going to work, yeah. but I do have some season extension stuff that I'd like to play with. But I know like most people don't realize that kale tastes a lot better after the frost. So once, mm-hmm. it, once a frost comes, then it, then you actually, it actually, the, it gets a lot sweeter. Um, but I like apples, you know, they're the same way. I think it, well, I think it depends on the variety of apple. I mean, that's a, that's a whole topic we could go down. Like why, <laughs> crisp like why most people think apples have a crisp taste and that's just the the apples that have been cultivated through selective breeding because they were the most marketable and there's um there's a it's a person eliza if i think it's just i forget eliza greenman i don't know i went to her grafting workshop she's in maryland but she's obsessed with apples and i guess most our apple varieties come from a, a forest in um man my roommate could tell me but it's it's like a forest somewhere in eastern europe and it's mm-hmm. and so most of these varieties have come from there but there's so many different apple varieties like there's apples that taste like fried chicken or apples that have different right. flavor profiles so it's just kind of like our our relationship with food and how it um how it's changed i mean cuz it's like you know you can eat uh like sorrel so sorrel taste has a very mm-hmm. lemon lemony flavor or you know, and I, I was having Hunter try all this food. I'm like, look, yeah, because we believe lemon and lime, like that's the flavor, but that's just because of the uh, the terpenes that are in it. So, mm-hmm. and so that's why there's different, you know, so with, with marijuana, for example, so, or, or cannabis. So the reason why there's blueberry and all this, these things is because those terpenes become, like they actually appear naturally in multiple different plants. And then you can just selectively breed for that flavor right. in that plant. Um, which actually something I wanted to talk to you about because something else that's super interesting is you have done a, a ton of research on how to re- and it's just mainly because of your son, yeah. um, probably more so than any, in, than any medical community, like as an individual on how to rehabilitate your brain and how to mm-hmm. re- regenerate your brain cells. Now, I, I didn't hear you talk about it in the podcast with Hunter. So, I mean, have you done a lot of research with, with cannabis in that regard? Um, I, yeah, I've definitely looked at the research. Um, what's a great line of research to follow if you want to heal the brain is follow the research that looks at curing seizures. Um, so I'm sure most people have heard about using um, CBD oil 
as a treatment for seizures, which apparently works really well for a lot of people. And it looks like it simply reduces inflammation in the brain um, through a series of complicated processes, which is everything in the brain, super complicated. Um, It wasn't wasn't really easy to learn about. uh, So the backstory on that is that I have four children and my third child, my son, um, suffered three um, traumatic brain injuries, TBIs, over the course of two years. Um, two of them, he was on his bike, and yes, he had his helmet on, which will not save you from getting a brain injury. It will keep you from cracking your skull, which is handy and better, but, well, but still. It's, it's just the same thing with football. I mean, people think right. the pad and everything. I mean, so anyway, so keep talking. I'll, I'll, I'll drip the conversation <laughs> quick. No worries. Um, and then the, the initial injury, actually, he was just messing around wrestling with dad in our living room, and he fell oddly. Um, and then the second head injury happened too soon after that first one. So he ended up with what's called post-concussion syndrome, where essentially the symptoms just don't go away. And we struggled with that for a year. And at that time, I worked full-time and I was getting my PhD in health education. So I quit all of that because he could not attend school. Um, and I started homeschooling him and I turned all my you know, PhD attention to just like, this is unacceptable. Um, I didn't like what the doctors told me. I thought it was ridiculous. Like, well, you know, you just have to wait it out. Maybe this is the rest of his life, maybe not. And I was just like, you know, excuse the expletive, but fuck that. I don't think so. You can say whatever you want on my show. (laughs) All right, good. So um, I had a really interesting experience with that. I just was trying and looking into everything, including research, but also just uh, I'm fairly experimental with life. So um, I got a scholarship for him. And at the time, we lived in Seattle through this foundation um, that gave small scholarships to kids with brain injury to go do stuff that would help them feel better. And so uh, I signed him up with the Vashon Wilderness Program. So that's on Vashon Island. And every Friday, we would load up all this gear, take the ferry across West Seattle, go to Vashon, and I would drop him off uh, to do this wilderness um, camp for you know six or seven hours. And rain or shine, winter, spring, fall, they were outside for six or seven hours. And sometimes they would hike. Sometimes they would learn to build fires. You know, there's just lots of wilderness stuff. And I noticed immediately, I was very worried about leaving him there all day because I figured he's going to develop headaches and he's going to be too fatigued to hike and, you know, all the different symptoms he had. So um, I would come, like I would wait on the island. I would go check on him at, at lunch. The instructors were great and they would be like, yeah, you can come check. That way if he's having a hard time, you can take him, you know, whatever. But he never did. He was always feeling really good. And when I picked him up, I was like, you know, did you have headaches? Did you get dizzy when you're hiking? You know, all the different things. He goes, no, I feel fine. And he just seemed like his normal self all of a sudden. And we would go home and then the symptoms would bump back up. And I was like, okay, so part of this is definitely environmental. I mean, that's how I saw it. And so just to alleviate his symptoms quickly, every time he was feeling really bad, we just started leaving the house. So we happened to live by Seward Park, which is a really beautiful old growth uh, forest so we would uh, go down there, walk around, or we would go to, he loved the beach in West Seattle. We would go there. We would pop up one of my husband's um, designed canvas structures and hang out at the beach for as long as he needed to. I mean, I had to make a tremendous amount of just open time uh, to help him get through that. And I just noticed like, okay, nature gets rid of his symptoms. Like, So I started turning off the Wi-Fi at home. 
I changed all the lights out once I started studying like the effects of blue light. Um, I looked, I was going down the road of like, okay, what helps people with seizures? This is obviously helping the brain. We can apply it to brain injury. So he went on a nutritional ketosis diet and he's very motivated, very disciplined kid. So it wasn't really a problem. Um, the ketosis essentially knocked out like 70% of his symptoms and then just doing some environmental shifts knocked out a bunch more. And then I had him see a functional neurologist and they did a little bit of work on, um, on his visual field, which kind of cured the dizziness just after a week of treatments. And then we were just on our way. Like it was amazing turnaround. So I got very interested. And of course it, during this time I met a lot of other people and different doctors and people who had had injury were recovering. And my husband is a veteran. He's a former Marine. So we also know quite a few veterans and many of the uh, people that we knew had head injury as well. So we went from there and he was making a great recovery beginning of eighth grade and um, such a great recovery that he was in, you know, all he was on a trail running team and he did BMX and, uh, you know, would take him out to ride his bike. He was doing fine. And uh, he had another really odd, he's not a reckless person at all. He had an odd wreck. Um, at the skate park on his bike and he landed really weird. What we figured out later is that as he started to fall, because he has a lot of uh, psychological um, imprinting from being injured and being sick for so long that we're pretty sure that he actually passed out. He sort of checked out before he even hit the ground. Mm. And so he didn't stop himself, which would have saved him this really big injury. And that was his worst injury. Um, we were on a life flight to Albuquerque. Um, it was, it was really scary looking. Um, but again, in, in the hospital, I was like, you know what? I just, you know, his head wasn't cracked. He had a small bleed in the brain, uh, not good for a person with his background, but I just, I wouldn't accept that again, I just wouldn't accept (laughs) what they were saying. They're like, well, you know, with the third injury, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. We're checking out of the hospital. We're going to go home. We know what to do. Like, to get him in the car and drive the four hours home from Albuquerque. We just kind of packed ice all around his head and his neck to reduce the inflammation so he could tolerate the car ride and not throw up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty intense person and I just was determined and like I banned the doctors from talking to him about his injury. They had to talk to me cause he's a minor. I could do that. Yeah. Uh, they were not allowed to use any of their words or give any predictions to us. Like yeah. we just, just like, no, we're not doing this. And I just told him, I said, you know what? It's not a huge injury. You're going to heal fine. Um, it was actually terrifying the first week he was home because he was what they, he was in a uh, semi-conscious state, uh, which means he was there, but not really, and not himself. Uh, so, and I knew that, you know, but he didn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, he had no idea what was going on. He was just like, man, like I really messed up my face when I fell. I'm like, yeah, because he knocked his teeth. He separated his shoulders. It's all lacerated in his mouth. Um, And, you know, I just, you know, we did massive doses of fish oil and he's back on really strict ketosis. And uh, he's in this really goofy, sort of like living with a drunk person. Yeah. Um, I remember one time, this is the best joke you've ever heard. We were at dinner and he was like, hey, I have a joke. 
what's the square root of toast? And we were all like, man, we don't know. And he was like, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, oh God, that's funny, but also not funny at all. Um, but he, about a week into that, he came in, he sat on my bed around 10 o'clock at night. I was reading in bed and he goes, mom, I, I think I just woke up. And he was just himself, like, boom, like back. And he just looked at me, he goes, what happened? And he literally didn't remember anything. And uh, so we just started from there and we would sit by the river and do lots of visualizations about getting back on the rock climbing team. And uh, he went and did a competition in Santa Fe like three weeks after that injury. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just zoom. And it was because I already knew so much. I already knew what to do. I knew the interventions. I knew not to listen to anybody's baloney because the truth is nope with a brain injury, even your third or fourth or whatever in the same person there is no one that can predict what that's going to do. Yeah. The, the brain's really weird. <laughs> so they, they just, there isn't a good predictive measure on that. So yeah, I developed a protocol and, and then I, what happened was I was already a health educator. Um, and I started working mostly for free at first, of course, just with people like, well, yeah, I did this with my son. Do you want to try it? You know, it's mostly nutritional and lifestyle intervention stuff. So, you know, none of it is highly medical. Um, not that some people don't need medical care. They do. I mean, many people do. But without the lifestyle and nutritional uh, support, my experience so far is that they're just not going to recover fully. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think that's the thing. Is if you go to a doctor, you go to a hospital, it's, it's something that um, has to be it's it's not it's not for prevention. I mean, you go there because you need somebody to intervene. So it's 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 like interventive. There's probably a better word for it, but I'm still waking up, Jenny. So um, <laughs> even though it's 11:30, what a good excuse. Uh, but it's well, it's more of interventional care. It's like you know we okay. So you're about to die. So we're gonna do some things to save your life. But which th they're great at. Yeah. I mean, really, like that's what that medicine is so good at. So once we he like let's say we were in the you know ICU in Albuquerque and we determined he doesn't need surgery he doesn't need drugs there's nothing more interventive they can do here and they don't have any other therapies to offer in that area and so i was just like we're ready to check out and they're like oh well we want to observe him more i'm like this is a horrible environment for a person with a brain injury there's blue light all over you guys don't ever let him rest you're coming in checking on him all the time like he doesn't, he literally doesn't need anything. So it's time for us to take over. Um, and, and for a lot of people with minor brain injury, I mean, that's exactly the case. I mean, with big brain injury, that's different. Like we have a very good friend, um, from Colorado who Aiden actually, uh, is really good friends with a former college student who, uh, fell off a cliff, uh, diving after his girlfriend who had fallen off a cliff and she was okay, but he ended up squarely landing on a boulder on his head with multiple skull fractures. She basically held his head together with her sweatshirt while they waited for a helicopter. And he shouldn't have lived. He shouldn't have walked. He shouldn't have talked. But he ended up graduating college and now works in Albuquerque and is an amazing, amazing person, amazing example of exactly that. He actually, as an adult, he pulled all the different you know, monitoring equipment off of himself and checked himself out of brain rehab uh, in Denver. And was just like, this is ridiculous. I'm not getting better. I'm going back to college. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do this whole plan you've got. It's not working for me. So 
um, the funny thing is, is that you really have to use your mind to heal your brain, that it's up to the individual. So it, you, it, that is what directs the whole process, the whole process of neuroplasticity, which is that your brain is so flexible and it has a really different way of healing than the rest of your body um, because it's such a different and unique organ. And uh, you have to apply your mind or if you're really um, in a world of hurt and like you're not operating very well or not very conscious, then a person who's close to you or let's say like a physical therapist or that kind of thing, they have to use their mind to make your body do stuff so that your brain will start to get the impulse to heal um, or to rebuild uh, a new network that you need for a certain activity. I mean, that's the whole point. Like when people have to relearn to walk, they're just pushing that whole electrical grid that said, this means walking over to another part of their brain. And it just takes time and it takes a lot of myelination. Um, but it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guitar player. I think he plays blues guitar or jazz guitar. And I remember years ago when I was um, taking like a classic, it was like guitar for beginners at college. It was like some elective I could take. And the, my instructor showed this video of this guy who had a stroke and he totally forgot how to play guitar. And he, and he had to like, and basically the guitar helped him get all of his motor skills back. And he, Mm -hmm. and then he, became an, a great guitar player again but he had a totally different style like it was pretty interesting right. i forget his name but that's so interesting yeah and i think there's other things too i mean not just with um brain injuries so blind people like i think we we cater we we make blind people feel helpless like there's this guy mm-hmm. who's like called batman not because yeah. and you probably know who he is not because he like dresses like batman but because he when he walks he clicks or he'll, he'll ride his bike and he clicks and through yeah. the clicks, he can actually see. And uh, he, he does echolocation using yeah. his voice. Yeah, so um, he, he taught yeah. himself how to do that, and it's and it's so something amazing. that we don't allow blind people to do because in our in our society, it's something that's distracting or annoying to people that can see. So it's uh, well, and the other thing too is like culturally, we believe you if you can't see, you're disabled, and yeah. so therefore you have to have this kind of help and these kind of services, and you. We just believe you can't do things by yourself. Um, one of my favorite yoga teachers here where I live, her son was born blind, her youngest son. And they travel a lot. So they teach a lot of yoga like overseas and they're actually from the Netherlands. Um, and I asked her how that was. And she was, oh, when he was a baby, they said we can't travel because he won't be able to navigate new spaces and this kind of thing. And she just was the same as I was. Like moms can be really fierce. And they're pretty brutal, actually, in terms of their own child's survival and thriving. And she was like, yeah, I just don't believe that. And they travel with him all the time. He's three and he loves it and he finds it interesting and he has his own way of exploring a new space and they just let him do it and they assist him with that. But they don't hold him back at all. Um, I don't think he even uses a cane yet. He doesn't have a, a, an animal. He doesn't have a dog. Um he just is figuring out his own way to navigate the world without sight, but he has all these other things that he's created. Uh, he's very kinetic, like touches everything um, is his way, you know, of seeing a, a space. And she said he never falls or gets in trouble in a new space. And he understands what a street and a sidewalk is, you know, like yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't have any problem. It's really interesting. And it's that belief. So it's the same belief and it's a cultural problem. It, it isn't a physical problem that 
And this is one of the main questions that drove me. So like I have this book that's nearly finished that will probably come out sometime in January um, called The Primal Brain Solution. And my question was, I was looking at, my kids are really healthy. Like they're super fit. They do all kinds of stuff. They're just, I worked really hard to make sure I have these healthy kids. And I, I was looking at him like, you know, none of these head injuries he had were so grievous that they should have left him basically disabled with PCS for a year. I was like, that just seems kind of ridiculous. Like, don't you think humans have hit their heads forever? Like yeah. falling down and hit a rock. You should be able to pretty much bounce back from that fast. And I was very curious, like, what is it with him that he's not healing? So that was actually the line I took. And the stuff I uncovered on that query was probably more concerning, but explained things much better. So there's a couple of researchers that have um, coined this um, diminished brain resilience syndrome, and they believe this is very, very common in modern people. And it's because of a an intersection of exposure to specific toxins and lack of specific nutrients. And basically what it does, it leaves your brain um, in this constant site, uh, state of uh, immunoexcitotoxicity. So the brain has its own immune system. And apparently if you've got a lot of these toxins ex that you've been exposed to that cross the blood-brain barrier, and then you've got this lack of certain nutrients, which almost all modern people do, um, you have a problem in your brain even though you don't notice and don't feel it. And you might only notice if you like have a minor concussion, but then you don't recover. That's a sure sign that, that your brain is not doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Like today, uh, someone reached out to me who um, has done like some, some martial arts, fighting, that kind of thing for the past 20 years. And uh, he just kind of knocked his head on the side of a wall really gently, but then was taken out for like a week. You know, headaches, dizziness, I can't stand the light outside, that kind of thing. I was like, man, you know, your brain's not okay. <laughs> like, it shouldn't <laughs> react like that to a tiny, tiny hit, you know. So that's where the lifestyle intervention um, and nutritional intervention is so critical, but also uh, detoxification, especially to certain exposures. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's amazing how much better um, you can, what a good diet can do for you. And it's something that it's, it's interesting when, when people get checked in the hospital, you know, people aren't asked, okay, what's your diet like? Or right. what, what are you eating? What are you consuming? Because it's the same thing with... I mean, computer programming or with, with even like with farming with soil, I mean, garbage in, garbage out. If you're, if you're putting mm -hmm. shitty things into your soil, it's going to produce shitty food. And it's the same thing. If you're putting right. shitty things into your body, your body's going to give you shitty results. So I mean, yep. you're not going to think as clear. Uh, I know personally, you know, when I switched to reverse osmosis water and stopped drinking as much fluoride, like I feel yeah. like my my brain got it. I just feel like my, I was able to make gains in my life. Like I can't really, like I, I don't really have any like, um, data to really back it up. Just really anecdotal right. evidence. But I, I just know like I, it, even with, um, my parents, like they drink reverse osmosis water. I have two sets of parents and it's like, mm -hmm. there's a different, it, I think it's that. And also like, I, I feel like I can tell who watches TV based mm -hmm. on commercials because I feel like when I, when I stopped watching commercials on television, it was a lot easier to think. It was a lot easier because <laughs> I didn't have garbage going on through my head about, 
you know, whatever, whatever advertisements that are constantly put yeah. in my brain, or it's the same thing when I, when I stop listening to the radio and I stop listening to, you know, garbage music that's designed not to be good music. Like it's designed to be right. catchy. Like the first time yeah. you hear most songs that are on pop stations, you think it's terrible and then you keep hearing it and then you like it because it's in your head and you can sing along right. with it. And so I think, um, right. I think it's, it's, it's the same. I, th I think for me in the way I, I treat the way I interact with reality is it's always about, you know, I want to control what comes into my brain or what experiences I have as much as possible because that's what I can yep. control. Exactly. And there are many things you won't be able to control. Um, so yeah. I definitely don't like when I work with people, I don't, there's no miracle. Like it's some things you're going to control and some things you can't, you might not be able to quit your job, even if it's not good for your brain. So how are we going to work around that? But you're talking about a, a mentality shield, which I'm a big fan of. And, um, I've had some interesting conversations with people. So I got that from this book called three simple steps and I'm going to forget the author. People have Google, Jenny. It's all good. Um, yeah, they do. So Three Simple Steps is this uh, interesting book. It's written for people who want to succeed in business. But I think you can apply these three steps to anything. And the first one is this create a mentality shield, which is that you can control what goes into your brain. And a lot of what is designed and out there and just ready for consumption is complete crap. And it is designed to make you feel fearful and bad about yourself, like all the women's crappy magazines and shitty TV shows and terrifying news that's often inaccurate, if not straight out propaganda. Um, I mean, you can name so many things. It's by Trevor and, Blake. So yes, makes Trevor Blake. Better. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it Great bother book. you. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it includes, you know, some meditation and um, getting really active with intentions. Um, and it's not foo fooey at all. It's very, um, very practical. I thought, and I very effective. Uh, my husband John is a huge fan of that. He still uses those three steps all the time, and uh, we do have data on that because he's gone from being a broke ass stonemason to being a in-demand stonesmith um, who's working amazing projects and getting to build the art that he wants to build, which is pretty impressive and not easy to do. No. Um, but this mentality shield, so this is what I teach my kids too. Like we don't have a TV. We do not watch any regular programming. We do watch stuff because it's fun, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, we watch some documentaries and there's certain TV shows. Like the kids just started watching old, um, t the TV show Cheers. Okay. I don't know why they find it so funny because it's super sexist and, and they're not exposed to that. And yet the characters are pretty compelling and it was funny they were breaking it down and I was like I just can't imagine how you think this is interesting and they're like well to them it's really old-fashioned and funny well but I think that I think that's like the way you should look at old school sexism is that right. it's old-fashioned and funny because it, it's ridiculous and yeah I think yeah that's that's where like like I get I've like I think a lot of messed up shit is funny and I right. think it's because I think it's ridiculous. Like, you know, I think our world is pretty satirical. And I think, you know, just, mm -hmm. just even our presidency, right? Like the whole Donald Trump sh shooting paper towels to the, the people in need. I thought that was so funny. And it's and it's not because I'm like, oh, look at the Donald. It's like, 
I mean, I, I've been saying for a while, like Donald Trump's the president we all deserve because he's at least honest with, I mean, that's, if you look at the U.S. policy, you know, it interacts uh-huh. with most other countries, like that's what it is. And that's yeah. like, and that's the, he's become the caricature of, of U.S. foreign policy and the way the United States views and interacts with the rest of the world. Like mm-hmm. he's like the, the reflection of, of that. And I think to me, it's, it's it's hilarious because now I people agree. can actually. I often laugh at things I'm not supposed to laugh at. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah, that that was the point of what I was saying there. I just wanted to uh, to say that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, things that he says are appalling. <laughs> things he does are disgusting. But I mean, it's yeah. it, it that's to me. It's like, well, I can't change it, so I can either choose to let it ruin my day. And then yep. I can, and then I can ask every single person, "Did you see what Donald Trump did?" and <laughs> and moralize it and politicize right. it and try to go on a, a higher, try to uh, falsely put myself up on a, a higher morality or moral mm. high ground, and it's just not true. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I think a lot of times people dive into these deep concerns about mostly stuff they can do nothing about because it helps you feel like you're more in control. Yeah. And that you can do something. And I always ask people if they want to talk to me about the current news and, and this and that. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do about it? I mean, seriously, yeah, like you, you, you could. You could choose to do things about it. Yeah. And you could choose not to. And so I choose the things in my life that I want to, like, what was it? Oh, that book, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah, that book's great. I, I lo- yeah, so his whole thing is so You only so have right. so many fucks you can give in a day or right. in, in There's the only world. so many fucks. And also, life is about solving problems, so just try to choose problems you like solving. Yeah. Right? Like, pick the problem. You have a choice. And I just, I don't buy, like, especially, I, actually, you know, I have had a very difficult life. Like, if you took year by year, like, I've had some really deeply difficult experiences, and I'm grateful for those nearly every day because they shaped who I am and they helped me understand that I have a choice. I always have a choice. I have a choice about how I'm going to feel about it, a choice about what I'm going to think, and then a choice about what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, and that was something, too, that was interesting. Like We were talking about Jay Dyer before the show because mm-hmm. I, I had Jay Dyer on it. It might, it will probably come out before this episode. We'll see. I got to... I'm sitting on a lot of episodes, Jenny, but I might right. prefer this one higher <laughs> because I don't have enough females on my show. It's not that I, I like I'm like, oh I'm anti female. It's just like a lot of the times the interest that I have, it's like there's a guest and it's like, oh, it just so happens he's male. So it's like But that's I listen to a lot of podcasts and yeah. it's definitely a male driven field. And I have really wondered about that. So I've asked um like my assistant, a lot of my friends who are very successful people and I was curious, and people who listen to podcasts, so women, and I asked them, you know, have you listened to any, you know, female podcasts and this and that, and we all determined that this is terrible too, and everyone's going to hate me. But one of the problems we ran into is that some women, and I believe this is a cultural thing, and I've studied it because I live in Southern California, and I hear this all the time, is that women don't speak like men, and they're not as authoritative, and they're harder to believe. 
Um, I was listening to an unnamed podcast with two female hosts who had a lot of good information, but they both talked like they were two years old and I could not listen to it. So I you, physically it, couldn't do it. But a lot of that I think really is culturally learned. I mean, like, women, oh, it's cultural learning. Yeah. Definitely. Like I look at my, all right. So Susan, um, Burns in her mom, Terry, like Terry Ray, Susan and Terry was into like going to the gun range. So Susan will tell me stories about growing up and playing mm. cards with dudes at the gun range. <laughs> And Susan's like hardcore. Susan's had seven kids and like raises, Whoa. homeschools all their kids and like right. takes care of the homestead when when um my good friend Greg has to go do a job or something because he's self-employed as well. And she's hardcore right. and she'll say, you know, I get tired of all the bra burner bullshit. And it's like, right? damn, Susan, you're hardcore. Like, I, I can't say that. Like, and uh, I've tried it like with different people, like, because I do... Like, obviously, like for me, like when I settle down, I want like a hardcore, strong woman. I mean, my stepmom's like that. My stepmom, like, mm-hmm. she like wants to, she want to learn how to weld. I mean, she's an artist. And so it was, awesome. yeah, like she was a big deal for her. And so like, uh, you know, so there's certain things that like, but she also, you know, embraces, you know, motherhood. And I think there's this weird thing to where yeah. with within like Southern California, within this stuff, it's like, you know, we... I feel like, you know, we're, we're really kind of fucked up societally because I feel like, you know, a lot of women, it's like we, we do take on certain roles, but I think, you know, there are roles that, that men and women are, are kind of better at. And I, but I'm not saying that, you know, traditional roles. I mean, like, I know there's, there's multiple families that I know that homeschool and one, my, my friend, John Fogel, like he stays at home and manages the farm and, and homeschools mm-hmm. his kids. And it's like, uh, so, but you know, maybe there certain roles are, are reversed, but it's not like, I mean, it's not like they're, they're trying to, I don't know. Like it's, it's still like, it's a balanced relationship. I mean, there's, there's well, exactly. And so you mentioned this, um, just in passing this, that your friend embraces motherhood, right? Yeah. And that is totally anti-neo-feminism, right? Yeah. You can't embrace that. You have to deny it. But if you have ever been, you know, become a mother or if you are partnered to a mother, right, of any kind, well, I mean, it just, is a very I physical, imagine, yeah. yeah, it's a physical and visceral and biological process. Um, my daughter had her baby this last June and we had a home birth with a midwife here and her partner came downstairs and we were getting snacks for everybody. And I mean, this was just, you know, half an hour after his son was born. And he looked at me, he goes, man, that is a raw business. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you're right. And he goes, just so much respect for her. Holy shit. Like he was in shock almost. Like it was so intense. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the, the empathy of a mother is something to not fuck with. And just imagine the doctors that would, even try to tell you what to do with your son and how well that went for them. I no, don't. No, it didn't. Didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, and my mom. I mean, my mom. It's interesting. Like some of the things I have with my mom is my mom was this like very strong figure for me. Like I think like growing up, like I had a head injury playing football, and it kind of ruined my football career. Thankfully, because I didn't know any better. And like my mom, my oldest son as well, and I didn't know anything at the time. Yeah, and, and it was like just a thing where um, I had a head injury, and it was it was like this cheap shot another dude did. He he hit me mm. with a face mask with his helmet, and apparently it happened twice. And I just remember the first time, and I was like goofy for two weeks, and right. and so and then I got injured, and my mom just really like 
wouldn't i mean she was like a, a bitch from hell to all my to all my uh my uh uh football coaches but it, they needed to experience that and i needed her to do that because i would have just kept playing because you know right. i'm 15 years old and and i'm easily influenced so yeah. but it, it's like one thing that's like what's weird though is is a lot of times like i saw with my mom is you know she hasn't it's like i i'm i'm looking at her now and she's getting older and like that empathy that defense of her children, she doesn't do the same thing for herself. And it's like been this like disconnect that's for cultural. me. Yeah. And it's like this weird yeah. thing that it's like, mom, like you would stand up to anything. Like she got a vice principal fired. Um, right. She like, she got cops fired, like just because yep, of the way that they were. <laughs> yeah. Just because of the way they interacted with her children. But then mm -hmm. when it came to her, like defending herself or 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 something like that it's it's not it's not there and it's like this well, weird my yeah my my take on that is there's this cultural learning that i always when i work with women um whether they're colleagues minor or, or friends or people that are my clients um i always say this uh we're going to make a little math equation and we're going to put you in it because especially women who care for other people i mean it seems very normal and natural but then it's exploited by society that you do put your children first and that is your first concern is their survival and then they're thriving if they can but um i think society exploits that too like now there's this whole you know especially younger moms than me have the we call it the badge of busyness you know they're so busy and this is their badge of honor this is their sacrifice for their children it's just run them around and i'm just a chauffeur and they're in 80 activities and i mean i can barely breathe and i'm just every time i meet a woman they're saying that and they're like oh my god you have four kids you must be so busy i'm like not really yeah <laughs> <laughs> plus my youngest is 12. like i don't have babies um but it's culturally so easy to exploit women and then on top of that you have this messaging that is you're supposed to be everything all at once all the time you're supposed to be super sexy super fit always wanting to have sex, right? And like raising great kids that are super healthy. So you're in charge of all their nutrition. You're in charge of all their medical care. You're in, probably in charge of the finances, which is the most common in most households. Um, you're in charge of your own career. Possibly if you wanted to have friends or a social life, you're in charge of your family's social life, your kid's social life. And now with the new helicopter parent thing, like you don't just drop your kids off at practice. You're supposed to stay there and watch them because you're that enthralled with every damn thing they're doing, you know, and like the layers and layers of expectation on women, especially women that are mothers is so ridiculous. It's, it's absurd and actually hilarious, right? Yeah. So when we start to get bit, like when all the kids were in school, cause obviously I have some adult children who are not, you know, in the house anymore. Um, so when all of them were in the house, I limited each child to one activity because that's four activities to manage, which is a lot. Um, so you become this master of logistics, you know, and getting kids places and whatnot. But I remember being shunned by certain parents, um, especially in this more affluent neighborhood we lived in, because I didn't stay and watch like every practice because I couldn't. And I also didn't want to yeah. because I'm an adult. I have my own things to do. Absolutely. And I very much believe that children should own what they do. It's their thing. Like if you're just doing it and you're looking at me trying to get my approval or something from me, like then it's not yours. You should own it. It's your thing. And so they feel very free to try things and then say, man, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. 
um, or like, mom, I want to try this and see, you know, how it feels. And, and what I've seen now is so cool is they very much embrace like their own interests and their, their own proclivity for different activities. So, um, like my 15 year old who had the head injuries, Aiden, um, every Friday he goes and apprentices with the blacksmith. Um, and that grew from just a few hours of testing it out. And what do I think? And it's kind of scary, you know, cause of all the different, you know, machines and, all the fire and welding and, and now he's there all day, every Friday. And he was a big part of creating this, um, bronze piece that got sent up to John's project in Truckee. So this was the company that John hired to create all the bronze pieces for this piece of work. And so he got to help with that. And then he worked with dad over the summer. He got to install some of the pieces he worked on. So he's getting real world experience, getting paid to learn. Yeah. Uh, actual skills right and then you have my youngest son Torin, who we call ginger snap he's my only red-haired freckly child <laughs> and uh, that's his rap name by the way ginger, ginger snap. snap he's hilarious he's like super into fitness he's the fittest 12 year old you've ever seen in your life he's like shredded and uh, he's always out by the beach we have a whole set of like pull-up bars but he's out there doing all kinds of weird calisthenic movements and flying from bar to bar and like he does gymnastics and he's rock climber and he's in a hip hop class. He dances, um, and he does. He's an amazing artist. The kid's really artistic, and so he does sketch painting. He did leather working for a long time, and he sold leather pieces and made beautiful wallets and bags. And um, and he's really into photography. So he's like three different cameras, and he's always out taking pictures. And and uh, yeah, it's amazing. They're such great self learners. I mean, they're always. Uh, in fact, I have the uh, uh, Thaddeus's book. Um, the renegade history of the United States. Yeah, ju- just came in the mail. I can't read it because my 15 year old Aiden took it. <laughs> That's great. And two days, it's been two days in the house. He's almost done with it. He's like, "Mom, did you know? Mom, this book is so great. Mom, check this out. Isn't that crazy?" <laughs> <laughs> That's and it's awesome. Really, yeah, it's super fun. It's super fun when you're not interested in like controlling your children or living through them or trying to but prove some too, kind of ego through them. I think it's uh, I don't something that I don't think people talk about is unschooling or homeschooling uh, yeah. gives a lot of freedom to the parent along with the kids, and I think that's that's, that's true. Yeah, and I think it's because you're not. Like you are dictating everything. You don't have foreign influences on, well, you're not dictating everything, but you're giving the, your, your goal is to give your kids the tools to teach themselves. And I think that's like, that's the biggest thing. And I think like even looking at, um, you know, interacting with, uh, the Fogel's kids or, um, you know, the Burns kids, like, you know, the, they are totally different kids than what I would expect from like kids that would be at a, uh, I get that all the time. Yeah. From people be, who meet my kids. They're just yeah. more mature and they're more self. Like, I mean, like Jake is, I think, 11. And I, and like Nate, like Nate's funny too. And they're both like, I think Nate's like 15. Uh, he might be 16 now. Um, but Jake, uh, he just, every time he sees me, he'll like say hi. And then like within like five minutes, he just starts talking shit. And he's just like, <laughs> and it's just like, it's just this immediate thing. Cause He's a lot like his dad. His dad talks shit too, and it's like that. It's like because of say like, hey, you better know if if, if you talk shit to people, they're gonna talk shit back, and, right? Uh, or if I get if I like if we're having beers or something, and I get a little too drunk, he'll be like, hey, Drew, maybe you should drink some water and lay off the beer, and like, right. just not afraid to check me. And he's like, 
And he's, you know, yeah, my kids are like that too. We had some yeah. crew members up in Truckee and they had some whiskey out after dinner one night and Aiden comes swooping by the table, grabs a whiskey bottle and goes, yeah, I think y'all are done here. <laughs> <laughs> he just moves over there. He goes, I don't want anyone to get in a fight, you know, <laughs> but it's just like, it's, it's very mature and they know, they kind of know like, Hey, we're all part of a tribe in a sense. We're all, we're all together mm-hmm. in this. And I, I want my life to be, you know, I want, I want enough, uh, you know, I like for me, it's always like trying to manage. Like I always have this thing to where I want people to feel comfortable around me because if they feel mm-hmm. comfortable, it makes my life so much goddamn easier. Like if you're so freaking true. out and everything, like I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Like I just don't. So like people are like, yeah, I just like being around you. I just feel like I can be myself. I'm like, that's it's by design, man. It's, it's not, I'm not, I've worked on this for the, over the years because it's like, you definitely exude that. It's really, really lovely. Well, I appreciate that, but I, I guarantee, I promise you it's for my own personal benefit and it's for my own self-interest because it's, well, it's yeah. easier. It's just easier right. for me to live my life if people can be themselves around me. Cause well, I don't, that actually plays into this whole thing about being a parent and this freedom that you gain. Uh, if you take, and it could be homeschooling or unschooling or like part-time schooling with a school. I mean, every school district has all kinds of different programs and actually there's a, a lot of ways to go. But there's a selfish part of that too, which is that when you have kids that are just trying to toe the line, keep their head down, get a bunch of homework done, they don't care about school, which is a a majority of kids. Some kids thrive in regular school and they do okay, you know, even enjoy it. But that's not most of them. You are living with a person who is not being themselves. They're not happy. They're overtired. They're generally very stressed. And it isn't fun. It doesn't feel good. It's really hard. And, you know, I know that from keeping my older kids in public school until they just rebelled and were like, uh, fuck you. You're not listening to me. I can't do this. I hate it. These kids at school are mean. The teachers don't care. I don't care about these subjects. I got, I got to be an adult here shortly. I need yeah. to figure this out. And they both essentially just walked away and taught me like a hard lesson. Um, so then I had to help them, you know, recoup their education and find a fun way to do it. And now, you know, my daughter's a new mom and she was texting me the other day. She goes, mom, I found all these free classes from these really good schools online. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like MIT and Stanford and all these places have like some core, you know, basic courses they offer. There's so much free education all over the place. She goes, oh yeah, I signed up for this psychology class and this other class. So when Leo's sleeping, I study and do this and that. And she was like, it feels really good. And the really interesting thing about becoming a mom is that um, it taxes your brain. Pregnancy really taxes your brain. And actually, you have a little bit of uh, – so the brain gets a little less dense when you're pregnant and then are first a mom. So you actually do have like mom brain. That foggy brain thing is real. It's caused by a biological thing. But then what happens is the pressure, the evolutionary pressure of having to learn so much so fast in becoming a mother – Um, actually rewires your brain to be tighter and denser. So the white matter gets denser and tighter and you have more connections. And so actually a year after becoming a mom, you're smarter than you were before. If you want to take advantage of that, Hmm. (laughs) you know, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like I definitely think I'm a smarter person after having four kids, but that's many, many, many factors, you know, not just one (laughs) (laughs) more experience too. I think just with life, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think um, you know, I I don't know. Like I I think it's uh, you know, something I was going to say and you really touched on it too is just just not 
being plugged into normal shit in society. Like, you know, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're not going to feel the so, same social pressure subconsciously. If it, and something too that I, I like that you talked about with your kids and activities is I think a lot of times the only activities people think their kids can do are what their schools offer. And I look at like my younger right. brother, he did martial arts, he did a, a bunch of different stuff. And then if, you know, he has, he has Asperger's and, um, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't even like, he's, there's certain times if you talk to him, you'll, you, you'll realize he's a little bit different, but he's mm-hmm. funny. I mean, like at first he, he had a lot of struggles with people messing with him. So me being right. his older brother and being a shitlord, Oh no. I just, would, <laughs> I would pick on him relentlessly and I just mess with him until he'd get upset. I'm like, dude, defend yourself. Say fuck you right. to me or say something like, don't take right. shit from me. Like, and then, um, and then he finally now, like whenever I see him, he's just breaking balls immediately. <laughs> like, and it's like, he just immediately says something offensive to me and we just laugh about it. <laughs> Because it's like, and, and like he, he got into fishing. And so my parents really were like, well, he likes doing this. So let's, let's cater to that. So now he's like, exactly. so it's, and it's, it's just finding, and it, it kind of goes back to like the whole Montessori method is, you know, you mm-hmm. let, you let kids figure things out to mastery. Um, but, um, I, what, how much time do you have, Jenny? I don't know. I'm I don't good. Remember. I have plenty of time. I have an open morning for once. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool because well, i want i want because we we talked a lot about parenting we haven't talked about the arrogance of man yet and we haven't talked right. about your upbringing and you touched on it and right. i think this is incredibly fascinating because when i <laughs> was definitely talk about that yeah when i was 18 and i'll set this up as to how like that crowd of people kind of came into my life and i never i never actually did transcendental meditation or anything but i okay. did like read like john Hagelin's book uh i actually have it on my bookshelf right behind me really yeah and uh the what is it the perfect i'll find it while i ask you about it but because i saw him in like what the bleep do we know and the secret right i forgot he was in that but before that i didn't realize he was running it was him running for president but i remember for my like ap government i took in um high school like we could get a bunch of extra credit because I hated, I was one of those kids that hated school. I don't, I don't think I actually read a book until I was in my twenties because I just never enjoyed reading. And my mom tried to do everything to get me to enjoy reading, but it it just, it didn't really, it didn't really work until like I would read sports magazines. That was about it. And I could tell you every single stat from like, I don't don't know why I would, I enjoyed it. I didn't even like watching most of sports. I think it was because my dad said it was good and I wanted to like, I felt like this disconnect between me and my dad, but that's a different story. And so, right. um, I, uh, I started, I, I didn't start reading until I was like 20, um, wow. 21 or 22. Like I didn't start reading books and then I've just, now all I do is read and listen to books. So, right. <laughs> um, so, but I, so I, I saw like, cause I didn't know a lot about politics. My parents, my, my stepdad was like a, a centrist, but he, he leans more liberal. I think he's more classically, eh, he's just more liberal now. Like he loves, they both loved Barack Obama and all this stuff. And like, they get mm-hmm. really into federal politics. So we were, we were going to these debates for governor and, um, it was when who was running. I think it was, I think Taft was running for reelection and mm-hmm. he was running against the, the guy. He's this Ohio politician. He was married to like the, the, the captain in Star Trek Voyager, the lady captain, she was married oh. to him and he was, <laughs> yeah. and he didn't have a lot of money. And this is like, this isn't like 2000, 
2002. So he was like for the 2002 election. And so we went to all these debates. And I remember the natural law party being there. Right. And I was like, man, I really like what they had to say. And my mom said, well, if you look into it, they have these weird ideas. And like, because they were just, you know, hardcore hardcore democrat my mom was and my stepdad i think wrote in the assist or the lieutenant governor as the candidate for his candidate for governor is his whatever vote right and um so that is how <laughs> i was first exposed and then i i started looking into um a lot of eastern stuff in my 20s like just just figuring out because i was figuring out my own life because I, I was raised catholic and then i i stumbled okay. on um well, first I stumbled on them, and then I also stumbled on Ram Das, which was like a similar. They were right. se- they were separate guru people, but they were it was similar, and um, so because there was like Maharashi, and then there was also M. Curly Baba, like do these two, right. and so I knew a decent I know a decent amount about this stuff, and I I got really into Wayne Dyer, and I got yeah. really into uh, like all this stuff. So this is like in my early twenties, and. So when you said you grew up within like this community deep, of, deep in it. Of, of what is it like Maharashtra University or so if Fairfield, Iowa, um, it has the now it's called the Maharishi University of Management. Um, prior to that, it was called the Maharishi International University, um, MIU is where I went. I actually attended college there. Um, and that's where John Heglin was my physics professor. Um, his book but also is called like, Manual for a Perfect Government, How to Harness right, yeah. the Laws of Nature and Bring Maximum Success to Governmental Administration. Right. And uh, like I would go on meditation courses because you know, there's always more meditation courses to take. Um, so I would go on meditation courses with like Deepak Chopra's kids and he would be there eating meals with us. And um, that was before he launched off into his own um, universe, uh, you know, of all kinds of stuff, you know, and I remember we would go to the, so I don't know, people don't know, if you don't know about Fairfield, Iowa, just type in Fairfield, Iowa, Golden Domes, and you will see lovely pictures of the two very big um, Golden Domes. These are buildings that they built on campus. So they bought a defunct campus that was abandoned in rural Iowa, uh, in I don't know, middle 70s, because it was cheap to be sort of the American headquarters for the Transcendental Meditation Movement. And so they opened a college. It's actually an accredited college. So you can go there and then transfer and get a graduate degree at like University of Iowa if you want to, because uh, Fairfield's just south of Iowa City. And um, they have a lower school. So they have like preschool through high school. Um, and like my younger brother and sister both graduated from, it's called MSAE. It's the Maharshi School for the Age of Enlightenment. as a private high school. Um, so you could essentially put your kids in when they're toddlers and have them go all the way through college um, if you want to. But I remember going to the Golden Domes and seeing Doug Henning, the magician, do a show there because uh, he was also a meditator. And actually, you find out many, many people are. And I find it really funny right now that Tim Ferriss is very big on meditation and he um, does TM. That was his chosen one to do. And so he talks about it quite a bit. In his Even um, now. Uh, the guy who Thad had on, who who teaches the oil companies how to sell themselves better, it's the right. Jewish guy. What's his name? Um, Alex uh, Epstein. Yes. He paid a thousand dollars to learn how yeah, to do transcendental med- meditation, and he swears it's helped him make a lot more money. I just do Headspace. I don't, right. uh, and I don't do it enough. But like, what is the difference between transcendental meditation and something you would do in Headspace? 
So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, was a, a legit yogi who came from India, and he first came to the United States in the 50s. Uh, he came to visit, and I believe he was hosted by some families. And like, my parents would definitely know the the history of that better than I do. I, I only remember vague things. Like, I, I definitely was at a couple of courses with the Maharishi. Like, I'm old enough to have been able to hang out with him and hear some of his lectures live, that kind of a thing. Um, which is interesting. I remember being, and I turned three, he gave me a three, you know, a three, uh, a rose, like three roses or something. I remember, um, vague, you know, kind of kid memories yeah. um, with that. But, uh, so he trained under another yogi named Guru Dev. Um, and I don't know exactly which form of Hinduism they practice because there's many sects, of course. Um, but I do know, like, if you go and you get taught, uh, at least back in the day, there would definitely be a poster that they, you could, if you were a TM teacher, you would buy this and you would have an altar, you know, with camphor and rice and flowers and fruit. And like, there's a very specific teaching. And when you get taught TM, um, they say the puja, you know, it's, it's in Sanskrit, right? So, and your your uh, mantra that you're given when you learn TM is also in Sanskrit. It's a Sanskrit word. So you start with a Sanskrit word. There's lots more meditation. You can learn advanced techniques, and then you can learn the TM City program, which I don't know if anyone remembers this, but the whole brouhaha around the domes was that people would go in there and they would do the flying sutra. I Have you heard of this? No, you don't I've, know. About I, this. I don't know anything about so, this. So let's go down this uh, rabbit hole. Okay. So hold on. I'm going to try to find um, where you can. Well, because there's a John Haglund thing where I remember where it was like the quantum field and he would talk about like they all sat right. and meditated and then it reduced, he claims it reduced the crime rate in Washington, D.C. So there's, a, yeah, there's a couple different things. So the reason there were these golden domes, they tried to recruit so many um, TM practitioners to live in Fairfield was to create enough people they would be, I don't remember what it was, 10% of the population of the United States if they were all, the idea is this, if you get 10,000 people meditating together at the same time, then they create a more coherent consciousness and that has a ripple effect out into the environment. So for instance, my godfather was part of the Purusha and Purusha were essentially self-selected monks. So they didn't marry uh, but, you know, he's an American guy, right? He's a, a software engineer. So self-selected means he chose to become a monk, just like he if I want to choose to become a yeah. priest or something like that. Totally. So he chose that, and then they go and they live together. And the uh, the TM movement would fly Purusha around to places where bad shit was happening and have them meditate, right? That was their answer. And because these guys, so they had even more concentrated power, Drew. This is what you have to understand. <laughs> because they, they meditated more than other people. I mean, so, I so mean, did it work? I mean, or is it, I don't it know. just partially, like, do you think, I think, I mean, I, I definitely think if you get 10,000 people meditating in an environment, it would just do from like mindfulness and like just the positive effects. Let's pull out all the, the spiritual shit. I definitely think it would in, improve that area because there's more, you, you're not as, I think it, it helps you with slow thinking versus fast thinking. And I, right. I, I do believe that. So I think there is some truth to that. But like the mystical powers of these Purusha, just because they're so they've they've they're so good at meditating. I, I mean, it just sounds kind of crazy. I mean, Wayne Dyer well, would talk about that shit crazy. too. 
Yeah, yeah. Like Wayne Dyer would say, you know, there was a fight, and I just my presence would walk around it, and then it would stop. But he also like claimed that he levitated at one point in time. I mean, he so this is what I'm talking about. Shit. And I just messaged you on Skype, so you can okay. see this is the TM flying. So it's called the Cities, where you get a series of mantras. I don't remember how many. You go to this very long course. It's like two weeks. So I did this when I was 18 because you can't do it until you're 18. And as soon as I was 18, I think. I sold like my first computer to go to this course, which should tell you something <laughs> about the problems <laughs> with the TM movement right there. Because my dad managed one of the first Apple outlets. So I had an Apple computer at home, like in 1987, right? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I sold that to go to this course and it's two weeks and you learn this really long series of mantras, right? And so your your meditation practice becomes minimum an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half at night. And then you come home and you get a special badge and there's all this security. Like you can't get into the domes very easily, right? So there's all the security and you go in there in the morning and then at night and you do your meditation practice with all these other people. So the domes are like, the floor is just like layers and layers of foam with some aisles here and there, you know? And then everybody uses backjack chairs, like stadium chairs to, to lean on. And then there's little bells that go off when you go from your regular meditation into your advanced cities program and saying all the mantras. And then the very end is the flying sutra. Mm. Right? Did you did you levitate? Did you did you <sighs> take flight? Do you believe you did? No, I don't believe that I did. Okay. What I do believe is that that much meditation. And I was taught to meditate when I was five. Okay. So I'm really good at meditating, right? I can yeah. drop into a meditative space like really easily. So every time I go to yoga, it's like hot yoga. It's like kill you yoga. Yeah. But I drop into a meditative space and I don't find it like super difficult. I yeah. don't struggle with it. I have control over my breathing, like all that kind of stuff, simply because I have a lot of practice. So what I found was that with if you're like I was regularly meditating with like five thousand other women, so there's two domes because men and women don't meditate together, mm. and that's because men and women who are doing these advanced meditation they get real squirrely, and I do think a lot of stuff would happen if you combine them. <laughs> Which is a really interesting thing about these meditation courses is people get pretty high, you know, and they get very excited when they're doing all this meditation, and so there's a lot of sex happening at these at these meditation courses, these longer ones. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a whole thing no one talks about, of course, because yeah. you're supposed to be enlightened and very modest, and there's all kinds of cultural rules that go along with being part that's of it. That's like the uh, arrogance of man, right, that we can escape totally. our, we can escape our biological urges. Or is, uh, how as about I D publicly Derek's... tell you the funniest yeah, story. let's do the it. funniest story about the Golden Domes that I have never told publicly. Okay? All right, I feel special. So, yeah, I mean, we go in these domes and like as a college student, you have to check in and out and you get graded on going to meditation, mm. right? So I, I would go and at this point I was disillusioned and angry and I didn't really want to go, but then I would fail a class in college. I was like, that's not fair. So whatever, I'll just go. So I sit in the back. That's where all the loser meditators sit by the door, <laughs> right? No, the, no joke. They're like laying down, taking naps, reading books. They don't care. All the people who are really in the cult are up front. They're very serious. They've got turbans on. They've been doing their Ayurvedic treatments. They're very thin, very vegetarian, very unhealthy, um, <laughs> really, really obsessed. Okay, that's the scenario. So you have all these ladies in there, 
And so I'm in the back, lazy meditation. You know, I do like 10 minutes of meditation and then I kind of hang out and whatever. And uh, there's a woman across from me and she, I don't know why she's not up front, right? Because she's really into it. She's got the all white gear on, you know, the white yoga pants, white shirt, white turban on her head. I don't know why you didn't have to wear a turban to meditate, right? No one cares. Yeah, but it just looks cooler. You want to really fit in that. You want to be, (laughs) even though you've given up these very um, these very wanting to fit in and look cool american culture it still comes out you man you still want to fit in and look cool in your culture yeah hey, she really did but i realized why she was in the back cuz she had a problem is that meditation made her hella horny mm. right so about halfway through when most everybody is kind of deep in meditation or they've fallen asleep which is fairly common as well and so things are very quiet people are very much in their own space generally this lady would start masturbating like oh right my there god that's so <laughs> weird i've been joking she would leave her clothes on but she was basically just going to town and like i would go every day and now i started to go just for the entertainment <laughs> like, she could do this every day like this is crazy but and it I was, was just, like nobody would say anything because it's just like what what goes on in the golden dome do. stays in the golden domes no one knew what to do. And finally, I had like a, one of my roommates in my dorm. She leaned over in the middle of meditation. She goes, you know what? So there's a secret special box that was near the door. And if you needed to complain about somebody, you could put an anonymous note with like where their chair was and what the problem was. And like, I guess my friend did that. And the next day, all this lady's stuff was gone. Like they must have revoked her badge. And she was like, I've never seen again gone the masturbating yogi was gone the masturbating yogi was that is so weird though like uh like one complaint they're like it's not even uh let's get out of here it's it's like no it wasn't that so this is we're not even going to do a a consulting as to why that's inappropriate we're just going to get rid of you and we're just going to ostracize you dangerous because that's what they did so a lot of times so you would go to these courses where you would do rounding which means multiple sessions of meditation piled on top of meditation Mm. and this can cause psychosis in some people Um, it's not unlike doing a bunch of psychedelics and your brain just wasn't ready for that didn't want to do it Mm. um, and it causes temporary or long-term psychosis but the way the movement dealt with this because anything negative in the media or seen as negative would be, you know, harm to their income. They would take, and I know multiple friends of mine who were kicked out of not just the domes, but campus, um, any kind of meditation event, um, because essentially they were having problems with their mental stability or one person on a long meditation course. I mean, he went nuts. Like he was throwing stuff at us and was in a rage and could not, his reality was not reality anymore. And all they did was called his parents and revoked all of his status. And so he was left to like, go talk to what a psychologist who knows nothing about, about the cult. Right. And try to figure out his mental health, which eventually he kind of regained, but not really. And that was, you know, 20 odd years ago. Um, so they would regularly do this. So we had a person in class kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, lose his mind in front of us, uh, very much that thing of like, uh, now it would remind me of a psychedelic trip where he could not come back essentially and get grounded. Um, they just, they just removed his student visa. So he was deported home. Where was he? Um, So where was he from? 
He was from Canada, so it wasn't, you know, he had a home to go to. Yeah. But essentially, they made it illegal for him to be there. That's crazy. And very cruel. I mean, incredibly cruel to teach people something, but then give them no mental health services on the background or even warning. You don't even get a warning when you learn how to meditate. That for some people, it can cause uncomfortable. Like if you start to meditate and you feel very agitated, uncomfortable, or you start seeing weird things, you should stop. And like for me, I don't do a lot of sitting meditation anymore because I've done so much. <laughs> I tend to do like really long walks or lots and lots of yoga, yeah. which is very meditative for me and works for me. But it also blows off a lot of physical energy, which definitely works for me better. Um, so it's interesting because there's a ton of benefit in meditation. I mean, even if you look at like healing from brain injury, one of the studied meditation quite a bit and it's very helpful. And for most people, any quiet time is helpful. But one of the reasons is so practical. No one thinks about it. Our world is very noisy and our brains really aren't quite adapted to the amount of noise a modern person encounters in terms of it just never stops for most people. So if you don't choose to turn off the TV, turn off the music, um, just 10 minutes of actual silence totally changes your brain waves. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, very practical and simple. It's why going out in nature is so helpful to so many people. It's quiet out there. <laughs> you know? well, I think, I think too, like my buddy, Joel, he, uh, he's like my farming, one of my, like the guy that really got me into farming and like, just like we, mm -hmm. we work together quite a bit. We have separate businesses, but we help each other out a lot. And, uh, Joel, he's got some major PTSD and I know he loves going foraging in the woods and like he'll right. like, he'll just have to, he just has to get out sometimes because it's he just like, it, yeah, because it's like, you know, life can get really intense. And, um, and I think especially if you have PTSD, which is still like, there's still not, I mean, just, just because like what we were talking about earlier with regenerating your brain, um, there's still mm -hmm. not a lot of research out there what helps you, but I know a lot of people get into farming and wanting to work with the soil and work in nature. And I think it's, mm -hmm. I think it's related to earthing or whatever the hell that is, but I think it's, yeah. it's just pretty much putting grounding. Your yeah. Grounding. Um, yeah. and so I, I think, um, you know, I mean, that it makes sense. So, so yeah. So how did you get out of this cult? Like, I think it's, um, it's interesting. There's another guy who hopefully will, will come out of the closet with his, his secret past religious identity that we both uh -huh. know who was a hardcore Mormon. And I, I well, only learned a lot about Mormonism because I, uh, I had basically, I wanted, it was, it was kind of sleazy, but I knew these guys <laughs> wanted to buy, uh, it was, it was, it was curious. I mean, I really was curious, but I knew if I took interest in, uh, because religious people are predictable if I took interest True. in the Book of Mormon, they would they would buy from me right. when I was at Verizon. So they bought a mobile right. broadband card, which was a big deal when I was still working at Verizon. Right. But I then they gave me a free book, and I was like, yeah, I was curious. I always wanted to read a Book of Mormon to kind of see what it was all about. And then what I didn't know was that the older elders would send the younger ones to try to introduce me to the truth. And, oh yeah and so like i learned a lot about i bet <laughs> because like what was interesting was is i was like you know what instead of avoiding these guys let's just go into that situation and read and just ask go for it to the source itself about all the goofy shit that right i know about the church of latter-day saints let's ask these questions 
And because like, and I think there's like culturally why there's such good business people is because they have really thick skin because at a mm -hmm. young age, they know like they you have to go do their mission. Yeah. Right? And, and their mission is yeah. to go out there and encourage people to challenge your faith. And they always have a smile. They're always super kind. And it doesn't matter yeah. what you say to them. If it's, they don't get offended They're because to them, right. they're just sharing with you the truth. So, you know, I've listened to him. him I, I, I grilled him because I, there were certain things that I learned from that experience with these two Mormons that there were some generalizations you could you could fit in. Like a lot of times if somebody is a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout, there's mm -hmm. to me in like it, just from my own anecdotal evidence, like there's an 80 percent chance that you were you grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints. And it's because it's like it's ingrained in their community. So because that's true. a church is a community center there. It's not it's not a church yeah. in the traditional sense. Like they don't have a pastor or they don't have a man. It's 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 a very interesting like a lot of things that's they true, do yeah. work, but there's just the crazy shit that's attached to it. So Well, and isn't that true? Like that's the thing we've learned at MMA so much is that all all cultures, even a cult, might have some things that work, mm -hmm. you know, that are good and that are helpful. It's just um, like thirty percent that isn't helpful that really fucks you up, right? And like, there's, I mean, literally millions of people who have learned TM all over the planet, and they do twenty minutes in the morning, twenty minutes at night, no harm, no foul, probably good for them, really great. But then you have the more diehard believers, you know, or the, especially the people who met the Maharishi back in the '60s and followed him, and he was their guru you know, um, which is really interesting. But I, well, but so I, I was attending MIU, the, mm -hmm. the college and I had finished the first year and I went back for the second year and I was definitely, I was doing it to please my dad mostly, yeah. um, you know, I was still pretty young and not sure what to do besides that. And, uh, I was in a couple of classes. One of them was the physics class with John Hagelin, and another one was an accounting class. And the weird thing about the classes there is they weave in, and this is how you know it's a cult, they weave in all the beliefs around TM into every uh, curriculum, whether it's accounting or whatever. So you get the regular stuff, like you learn how to do your regular things, like algebra. So it sounds but like Catholic also, school. Right. But you also have to learn the science of creative intelligence is what they call it. So alongside accounting, you're going to be basically reviewing the basic beliefs of the cult all the time. Right. And I had a moment in this class where I didn't really freak out, but I just I'd had enough. I had had enough of like I was 13 years old and like my dad I was going through puberty and I was really angry and my dad would just be like but you did you meditate today and I was just like are you fucking kidding me like that's going to solve everything I mean when I grew up that was the thing they really were like you just need to meditate more like that was their answer to everything which is no answer at all to a 13 year old but you that know? also sounds similar <laughs> to like uh Any scientologists other well yeah right. scientologists they think that if it's it's warmer than if it's not 72 degrees, like they figured out scientifically that 72 degrees is the op optimum temperature for humans. Seriously? And uh, yeah, Hunter said that in like when he was doing acting class, if things started getting out of hand, they'd, they'd go look at the thermometer and be like, listen, guys, it's just getting out of control because it's 74 degrees right now and it's not 72 degrees. So let's oh all, God. let's yeah. all relax until it becomes cool. 72 degrees again. 
Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's, it's similar. That's like the stuff I grew up with. Totally. Yeah. So then it was also like, you have to follow an Ayurvedic diet and you need to get Ayurvedic treatments and you have to get advanced meditation. Not only that, you have to get your house done in this Tapachaved style. So Stapachaved is like feng shui, but it comes from India, right? And so, so like there were all So does your kitchen have to be facing a certain direction? Yes, yeah. exactly. So like this whole fad went through town. So these contractors who were not meditators were making bank, changing people's southern entrances into their homes to eastern entrances. Yeah, right? that's interesting because recently, so because new home building like we're we're kind of maxing out with new home building in Columbus because it's it, it's growing so much and like mm-hmm. I was smart and got a house for practically nothing in the city where nobody gives nice. a shit about but right. my friends that got laid off with me um the one girl I met made just a shit ton in a month like I think she got like a 20 grand commission check or something because we have a lot of in like we have a lot of in we have a lot it's Columbus is pretty diverse but we have a lot of like cultural like their biggest customers were cultural like cultural customers so it worked out well for them that they could design a home so the kitchen was facing a certain direction or like what you said the rear entrance was facing east so then they got so many um referrals because it would be like they would tell their friends, oh, it's actually great right if you go at this home building company so keep going so yeah yeah no so Uh, That's the kind of stuff I grew up with. Um, My parents learned to meditate in Albuquerque when they were like three months pregnant with me. And um, they had met at UW in Seattle uh, before that and as a baby. uh, So they ended up going back to UW, going back to school when I was a baby. And we lived like just off the Ave. And like my dad would always take me to campus and stuff as a baby. And and, and my dad has multiple, multiple degrees. He's a really, really bright uh, guy. And, uh, my mom actually just passed this year, uh, but I still have my dad and they were, they were, uh, divorced when I was 19 and, and remarried both of them. So I also have two sets of parents. Did they leave the cult as well? Well, my mom definitely left the cult, although she would still meditate. Um, but the belief was gone. So she actually, you love this. So this is some hippie credentials. Like she actually went and studied with this guy named Sunbear and became like a pipe carrier and would oh, lead vision, yeah, vision <laughs> quest and sweat lodge like until very late in her life until she got sick. Um, she's a master herbalist and she studied Kabbalah and like she just studied whatever she wanted to. That's great um, though. Yeah. I mean, she just felt very free. And my dad stayed, he definitely meditates every day still, but um, he let go of the more cultish uh, things and, and learned through his children, which is common that uh, it isn't the meditation that makes the person, you know? Yeah. Uh, but for him, it was life-saving. <clears throat> you know, he chose meditation over heroin. Good choice, Dad. You know, definitely <laughs> yeah. good choice. Like, and for him, so th- it was that important, you know. So I could, a- as an adult, I could be like, okay, I see. For him, he had this experience. You know, I had a different experience. So I didn't need that. You know, I need different things. Um, so, you know, we get along great, and he's a wonderful person and very bright. And, uh, man, I tell you what, like, he, my dad – it's so hard to hand my dad like things that I'm working on parts of my book or blog pieces I write or whatever. Cause he is astute and tough. Like he has definitely taught me to argue well, get my points straight, know what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> like, good. He doesn't cut any corners. I did not like that as a child, but I really like it now. I really appreciate it now. And my mom was definitely kind of more like 
the most compassionate person ever. I mean, you could sit her down with an axe murderer or like the guy from Vegas and she would find a reason to care about that person. She really was that way, which is really, really amazing. So I have a really sharp intellect on one side and all this compassion on the other side. And, um, you know, I was very lucky. So I didn't escape. I didn't have to like exname my family or anything. Um, my brother and sister went to the private school in Fairfield, the meditator school, like all the way through. Um, I refused to do that. I went to public school in Iowa. So I was like on the drill team and dance team and, you know, went to Kager's football games all the time. And like I did the whole Iowa thing. Yeah. And I still have great friends, you know, from there. Um, so when I decided not to meditate anymore, though, I did have sort of that leaving a religion feeling. Mm. Um, I felt guilty. I felt guilty for not meditating every day. And I knew that wasn't normal. And so I just kind of waited for it to fade. Um, and then I just continued to make my own decisions. I, I left the college and I didn't finish my degree there. Um, and I ended up meeting my first husband. So I am divorced and remarried. Um, my f- oldest two kids are from my first marriage. And, uh, and yeah, so I just went on my way and like, you know, I had all these jobs and then I became a mom. I became a mom when I was 24. Um, and that changed my life, changed my trajectory a hundred percent. Um, and I have to say it was because I had a home birth. Like I had no idea what kind of a strong person I was until I did that. So did you have a home birth with all your kids? All kids. Yep. Yep. So my first son is 23 and I had, I, he was born in Iowa illegally. Yeah. So is home births, are they illegal in uh, Iowa? Well, it's not that a home birth is illegal. It's that the midwife attending you isn't legal. Yeah. Um, But there's a big, yeah, it's nuts. There's a big Amish population. And so there has to be home birth midwives. So they just all operate underneath the law. Same here. I mean, we have, um, Mm -hmm. as you know, Ohio is a bunch of Amish too. Ohio and Iowa aren't too different. They sound similar. No. Um, Yeah, they're very similar. So yeah, I just just have a lot more hillbillies here. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't remember running into a lot of like hillbilly culture in Iowa. Although, you know, we moved there because of the TM movement from Southern California when I was in seventh grade, which was entirely cruel. And then I went to Iowa public school after being a West Coast girl. And the cultural shock was, took me a year yeah. to figure out these people. I didn't, I didn't know people went to church. Like I didn't know about that. I had yeah. never opened a Bible. Like <laughs> it, was, it was all new to me. All new to me. So, I mean, did home birth was like, so what drew you to wanting to do a home birth? Was that something that people did in the TM movement or was that just something that you were like, yeah, I want to do this? No one that I knew, uh, the reason, so Fairfield's a very small town. I went to just the clinic where I'd been going, which has a bunch of like family practice doctors. And they also did all the births at the hospital there. That all seemed pretty like, okay, that seems pretty good. Right. But I had um, a thing called hyperemesis with all of my pregnancies, which means it's uncontrollable nausea and throwing up um, way past the point of morning sickness and past the point of like, and I would have this it for four sleep. times. I know I probably am <laughs> stupid, <Not really>. <laughs> <laughs> but like I would lose a good like 20 pounds the first four months of being pregnant. Like I would get very thin um, and then finally it would go away and I would be able to eat again. But um, I was... I mean, for the time, I was fairly knowledgeable about nutrition, so I was pretty good at getting like the tiny amounts that the baby needs. And I did have like ten pound giant babies, and they're all really healthy. So who knows? <laughs> um, but I, I had that. So I was seeing the doctor. I was telling him about that, 
And he said, he's an old doctor, right? I don't know how old he was at the time, but I'm sure he's passed on at this point. He said, well, I don't know why they ever banned that thalidomide. So I went home and I looked up thalidomide, which at that time included me going to the library and ordering things so I could learn what it was, right? Yeah. So I found out thalidomide was something they gave women in the 50s and 60s to stop nausea. And it caused horrific birth defects like missing legs and missing arms, <laughs> Uh, no joke. Like, this is no joke. And I was like, I literally can't step in that clinic again. And I was six months pregnant. And so I started asking around the underground and I found a local midwife and I hired her and we just switched care because I was terrified. That's why yeah. <laughs> like she's going to do better than this old guy who wants my baby to not have a leg. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. And maybe he just had this disconnect because for him it's, it's like, well, you're my patient and I want, I want you to stop having these symptoms. And maybe he forgot about the legless children that, that would come oh, out. The scariest thing was, did he not know? Like, oh my God, what else doesn't he know? You know? <laughs> yeah. It goes back to yeah. experts. Right. Yes. So my motivation was like, no. So what I did was I, again, went back to our library. I ordered a bunch of stuff from the University of Iowa um, library, which is great. So I got research. I looked into home birth. I looked into the history of midwives. I didn't know anything. I was 24. Um, I talked to my mom, you know, um, so I hired this woman I had a little bit of a difficult birth, um, and I don't think the woman that I hired was as experienced as the subsequent midwives I hired, but she got the job done, and my son was okay, and I was like, oh, okay, this is this whole thing's silly. So actually what happened after that was um, I became a lactation consultant and a childbirth educator, um, and then, then I went back to school after I had my daughter. Um, I went back to school and I got my bachelor's in human and infant development. Um, so I was always studying pre and perinatal psychology and maternal health, maternal child health. Um, and that's what I was doing my master's and my PhD in as well. Um, so it was really motivating to me. I mean, very motivating. Um, so I did lots and lots of education there. I taught hundreds and hundreds of parents, um, birth classes and lactation classes. And, uh, then I got into early childhood I used to be a community health educator and I was, uh, I got this really long training program where you go and do home visits for parents who are very much at risk for abusing their children and that kind of thing. So I have a lot of, of background there. Um, yeah, it was super motivating to me. And then I had an amazing midwife with my daughter who was just super solid. And I was just so impressed by her and her capacity and, and the midwives I had with the other kids too were all stellar people. John calls them like the Navy SEALs, you know, <laughs> of birth care because they're badass. You know, they, they come in, they've got all the equipment, they've got oxygen, oxytocin, things that you might need or Pitocin. Um, but, you know, it's all sort of hidden in the corner and they basically are really good at hanging out and letting nature do its thing unless you need help. And then they're very gentle and, and respectful you know, about helping you and what would help you. And they try to get to know you. Yeah. Um, so they can help you. And they always encourage your partner or whoever's there, your sister, your mom to, to be your support. And like my daughter had a full eight pound baby boy, first birth, first baby. Uh, she was in labor for five hours. Like, and yeah, it's hard. It's super hard, but it was very normal. Just like the midwives, there's three midwives here because it's a first birth and they basically all sat in her room and did nothing. 
(laughs) (laughs) They just sat back and they kept looking at me like, she just knows what to do. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) And it can be a really transformative experience and it can also be a really difficult experience. And if you have a really hard time or it's traumatic or you get transferred or, or you start off with, with a hospital birth and things go sideways. And again, like, you know, C-section, a safe C-section is an amazing thing if you or your baby need it. It's just overused. Um, like most technology, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in that situation, like what would happen with an emergency C-section if you have a midwife, like they're not going to do a C-section. Like how do you, how do you know? Um, there's all kinds of signs. Like, um, one of them would be that the baby's heartbeat doesn't sound normal. Um, that mom is not doing well. Like she's been in labor too long. She's exhausted. And sometimes the body's just like, we can't do anymore, man. It takes a lot of energy to go through labor. Yeah. Uh, so mom starts to get exhausted in the fluids and like you're giving her honey or small amounts of things to bring her back aren't helping. And oftentimes, you know, they'll give you oxygen too. And, and if you respond to that and you can kind of rally and keep going, then great. So but what, what would happen if do you just call 911 if it's not working out? Or? Um, it depends on which, like what stage you're in. So generally what happens is midwives are very bright and they will call it long before it's an emergency. And so uh. you, you'll transfer. Essentially, they'll call the hospital, say we're coming, blah, blah, blah. You, get every, you, you have an overnight bag ready. You have all your stuff ready to leave in case you need to when you have a home birth. And so you would, if everything's going okay, but you know that you need to go to the hospital, you would just go all together. And the midwives do go. And at that point, they sort of become like a doula. So they'll stay with you, but they're no longer your care provider um, is how it works in most places. Unless midwifery is illegal, in which case they will drop you at the front door and you and your partner, mom, sister, whoever's helping you go in on your own. Because they can't go in with you. They'll get arrested or in trouble. So that was like your plan in Iowa. Because right, it was my plan in Iowa, and I was only like three blocks from the hospital, um, was that we would go, just my, my husband and I at the time, that we would go by ourselves that's, and just be like, oh, I was just laboring at home. That's so crazy that it's illegal. Right. I, thankfully, it's, Ohio, like we, we do have some pretty good laws. Um, and it's, it's more and more. It has come around, but man, it's taken a lot of fighting and um, a lot of effort. And it shouldn't be that hard because midwives have good numbers. Like statistically, they are the better care provider, whether they're at home or in a hospital. Because you could have a nurse midwife in a hospital too, but they do a different style of care. And countries that have the best infant mortality and maternal mortality use midwifery care as their standard. And OBs back up midwives for difficult cases, which is exactly how it should happen. Yeah, because you don't need it. It goes back to you don't need intervention unless unless you need it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But determine when you need it, and like it's like if you go train, you know, to shoot a gun and be in a war, you want a war, so you shoot your gun because you know what to do now, right? I mean, whether you want that or not, you want it. And so if you're trained to do C-sections, you're trained to do emergency medicine on laboring women, you want to do your work. My favorite person who ever attended a childbirth class of mine was an emergency room doctor. And he came back, they had four kids, and they came back each time they had a child uh, because in his first round, he started off so skeptical, not wanting to be there, thinking I was basically just like some hippie chick, like whatever. And uh, what happened was in between like class two and three, he was on call and his emergency is small town. So he just had the one emergency, which was a snowstorm. A woman came in in labor and her doctor couldn't make it. 
And so he went up to the fourth floor, the, the OB, and, and sat with her. And he was considering what I had said. He was planning on doing all these things to her, right? Which that sentence in and of itself should concern people. Yeah. But, <laughs> but he decided to sit back because everything seemed okay. And so he sat back and he said, it was just amazing. She just did it. Like she just knew what to do. She flipped over on all fours and then laid on her side and just, we made sure she had water and, and gave her a little oxygen towards the end and got her in a nice position. And he goes, I just was sort of hands off and, and ready to do what she needed. But, and, and then what he said, he goes, it was beautiful. And it's the only beautiful thing I've ever seen in the hospital. And I was just kind of like, wow, okay. And they went on to have home births <laughs> with midwives uh, all very safe and, and wonderful. And not everybody can do that or should. Um, but the hospital can change too. One of the most interesting things I, I read about birth recently was that the design of the OB floor in a hospital will determine how many C-sections happen. That's so if the C-section suite is designed to be close to the birth suite, more C-sections happen simply because it's easier to go across the hallway rather than to a surgical floor. Isn't that strange? Well, it's, I mean, I mean, it's just human. But it's, not. it's just, we <laughs> like convenience. And I, yeah. and I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it, it kind of segues us into the next conversation, which is, you know, mm -hmm. that humans are, I mean, something, you know, I had a long conversation with Hunter about, which we'll, I think we, we touch on it, but it's just, you know, we, humans are, we're not as, we're not as fantastical on our own as we think we are. And right. <laughs> sometimes we're a lot more powerful together than what we even realize we can be. So I think, um, you know, I, I think that just goes back to like, not necessarily just the arrogance, but it's, it's just that, you know, you are going to, it's, it's, it's just like anything in sales, right? The reason why things weren't getting sold and, and it would be, they were, they, they were always, so we'd always be in these meetings and cause we'd have meetings all the time in corporate America. Mm, right. <laughs> so why aren't we selling this? And Nine times out of ten, it's because we're not talking about it. If we talk right. about it, we sell it. So, right. and, and it's the same thing. So, if you know, why are there so many C sections? Well, because it's it's right there. So it's just easier to do it. Like it's easier instead of me having to. If so, if I if I get worried about something, um, you know, that's it's just it it's easier mm -hmm. because it's right there. Well, and underneath that is a cultural belief that technology is better than nature. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a big one. And that's, that's the big one. That's why you have a 35% C-section rate where it should hover somewhere between 5 and 15% to be safe. So that belief is really unsafe for moms and babies. And you do want to have the capacity to have safe C-sections. It's really critical. Um, but yeah, it's that belief. So uh, one of my favorite authors, Robbie Davis Floyd, is a, a researcher and writer. I think she's at the University of Texas in Austin. And she wrote um, Birth is an American Rite of Passage. So she wrote it from an anthrop anthropological point of view. Um, and she compared like a holistic model of birth, which does exist elsewhere on the planet, to our uh, technocratic uh, model of birth here in the States. And the reason I talk about this a lot is because the way you're born and what happens early on in your life really matters to who you are later. Um, and it actually has deep health consequences over the lifespan as well. Uh, so now they're just realizing babies born by C-section, um, 
have higher rates of asthma, higher rates of inflammatory diseases and autoimmune disease, and higher rates of obesity. And that's probably because they don't encounter all the bacteria um, in the birth canal because they don't go through the birth canal. So they don't get colonized appropriately with good bacteria before they're born, and it leaves them susceptible to all sorts of disease. So now they're doing where they swab the vagina and then put it on the baby right after birth if a C-section has to happen in order to help that child have a better, healthier life. Hmm. And that's just a brand new discovery. Like, yeah. I mean, this bacteria, you know, revolution is brand new, just like the so, connection between uh, Parkinson's and gut bacteria. And that will probably moving forward, like fecal transplants and bacterial treatments will be the treatment for Parkinson's disease in the future. So we need to give somebody else, somebody else's poop to prevent Parkinson's disease. Just so people know what a fecal transplant is. If you don't know what that is. (laughs) That's a real thing. Sometimes sometimes you don't have good poop. But I think a lot of that has to do with diet. Like I was thinking today, like I'm trying to get back on like soil, actually soil and diet. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I, it was interesting. I was in the MMA chat group and Hunter came over and I said, and so we have fun with like these terms because we can't say organic and we don't like to say organic because it's like a, it's a co-opted term by the government and you know, not to sound crazy, but no, but it is. Yeah, yeah, you can you can look to see like look if if it's organic. Um yeah, wow. now now at the same token my good friend Sean Brown who who he had one of the original certified organic fields and farm mm. and it's like and so Sean goes so a part of him gets gets like uh, frustrated with the beyond organic term because it's like well look it's it's certain standards like there's I definitely probably couldn't get certified organic just because I am in the city. I mean maybe I can. But there's different mm-hmm. there's different standards that they have to become certified organic, and a lot of them are ridiculous. Like one right. thing was is like uh, like it took Sean forever to find out if he could install a certain kind of fence post because it would be it would mess with his soil. So after like waiting months, him and his wife waiting months, and uh, they they actually they homeschool as well, and their kids are uh-huh. super cool. Um, but like one thing that you know Sean and his wife had to say is, oh well. They, they basically had to figure out a way, like a loophole in it, so it could be okay. Like it was so many, it was X amount of feet away from where they would actually have <sighs> their cattle wow. or whatever. And so, and they couldn't, even though their their cows are all grass fed, they can't prove that the dads of their, um, or the studs were oh. um, organic, certified organic animals. Oh so they can't, <laughs> they can't, even though they have certified organic soil, they can't call their animals certified organic. So there's like, it's, it's just a big game that I, I don't want to play like everything. Like we read the book sapiens, right? We realize everything that we do is a game. So this is a game (laughs) I'm not going to play. So I'm going to have fun with it and create my own game. So one thing I said was like, I had this picture of bacon and I said, yeah, it's craft forest raised craft pork. (laughs) And this guy who, clearly doesn't that hip to food and i'm not trying to talk shit on him and i was actually trying to right. engage him and uh he stopped talking and uh he goes yeah i bet if you did a blind taste test you couldn't tell a difference and i go well we've actually done those and you you can tell a significant difference yeah you can between <laughs> well and that's the thing with pork too that people don't get like uh i had mark essig on 
or Isig. I always, man, I fuck up his name. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> but he wrote this book and it was the history of, of, of pig and like, Oh really? And, yeah. And it's, um, the, um, the humble beast. Uh, it's like, uh-huh. from, uh, I for, lesser beast, the story, the, the, the snout to tail story of the humble beast. And it talks about, like, it goes into the history of pigs and why oh, that's pigs awesome. are in certain cultures aren't, aren't, um, aren't considered a healthy animal to eat. And it's because pigs will eat anything. Like they'll eat shit. Like right. they'll eat human yeah. shit. And the flavor of pig is very much so determined on their diet. And right. so if you eat, I mean, so there's a reason why, you know, it was the other white meat and it was because they were basically like the, the, the pigs were malnutrient, like they were malnourished and they were yeah. basically creating these really unhealthy pigs and then slaughtering them and trying to sell them to try to sell more pork. Um, Versus, right. you know, the, the meat I get from like uh, Greg Burns or, or Sean, um, Sean mm-hmm. Brown or John Fogle, if I get their pork, it's completely different because it's... I get pork here from a local producer who lives up the hill for me at he, the farmer's market. Does he raise them on like in the forest? Well, no, they don't have enough space to do that, but they have, uh, you know, a few acres and they have it all set up. Uh, nicely so they get some foraging and they get some fed food and um like he said he said exactly what you said he goes well i can't call them organic but essentially you know this is how we do it and i was like sounds good to me yeah stuff's great like so tasty well yeah and like so so lard and tallow were the standards of how you cook things like how you fried things Mm -hmm. so then like um i mean nina teichholz talks about it in um you know big fat mitt or uh I think it's called like big fat lie or I the forget. big fat lie yeah, yeah the so, one about that yeah yeah and i heard her on the podcast and she and she and i had her talk about like how the 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 uniforms that they were i forget i think it was for mcdonald's like they would have like clothing that they would ship off to get washed because the the stuff the, the fried from the, the splashing of like the fried mm-hmm. whatever they use now to fry and like these uniforms would like spontaneously combust and all this weird shit and this is shit that we're putting in our bodies and it goes back to garbage in garbage out and it's it's the same with with pork i mean if you have a a pork that that like forages most of the time and then eats um and a lot of too a lot of pork has to do with the the heritage breed so like sure um but like if if you have a pig that's eating um uh if you have a pig that's eating like acorns and cicadas and and just all this different stuff that they would get in a forest where pigs like pigs are like designed to like most pigs there's cooney cooney and uh american guinea hog and they they will eat grass they don't actually mm-hmm. root up and they really not, yeah so they're more grass fed they're pigs that think that they're not pigs it's like that's kind of that's the, so funny yeah but like <laughs> if you take like a, a tamworth which was raised in pasture but they will still like it'll still root and destroy your pasture so like sure sean like he like Sean will like you have to work a lot harder as a farmer to shift your your animals so they don't destroy your land. So there's right. like there's I mean I don't want to get I don't want to get too deep into it but the the point of what I was trying to say is that uh I don't know. See I get talking about this stuff Jenny and I forget what we were talking about before. <laughs> we were actually but, talking about soil and soil. quality. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and garbage in, garbage out, and the difference between, like, a commercial hog and a hog that was allowed to be a hog. Exactly. So American yeah. Meat is this great documentary that will take you through um, the difference between normal commodity meat, organic meat, mm-hmm. and, like, 
basically the way Joel Salatin raises me. And it's like, so, and there's oh, like, I haven't the, seen that. Yeah. And, and it's not on, like, you actually have to pay for this. His name's uh, Graham Merriweather. I had him on the show too. And it's, nice. it's a great job and it shows because he originally wanted to make this Michael Moore style documentary where he just shits on these farmers and like right. makes them look like they're evil. And then he like, he kind of started to film with Joel and through talking to Joel Salatin, he's like, you know, I should really talk to these other farmers too. And then he just realized, okay, well, these are people that were forced into this get big or get out thing that really mm -hmm. happened with farmers. And now they have so much debt from the infrastructure that they were forced to build that it's either they have to keep yep. doing this or they're going to lose their land. So it's yep. not um, it's not as simple as we, we like to make it out to be. Um, and so I think, you know, with soil and, and garbage in, garbage out, I think, you know, for me personally, just like getting into food and growing food, um, you know, I think the, the, the game to to just add to your soil, it's it's not I mean, it's it's why wouldn't you? I mean, if the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. And it's just like, I think anything that we do, like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, if we are, if we want to participate in a community, the more you participate, the more you get out of it. And mm -hmm. I think, um, so I don't, I don't know, Jenny, I, I digress. So I, I, I got, I got on this soapbox and I ruined, I feel like I drew it up the conversation. I didn't ruin it, but I drew it Not up. Not at all. <laughs> Not I drew it that's up what a because conversation is. Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I wanted to get. We were supposed to talk about the arrogance of man. Well, I think it well, goes back haven't to, we done that all along? Yeah, yeah. The technology <laughs> when it comes to farming. I mean, that's one thing. I, I think people will tag me in this stuff, or people ask me about hydroponic or aquaponics or aeroponics, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I don't think they're bad things. I just don't right. think we should forget about how soil is supposed to be grown. Like, look, if you're a retired per or Oh well, yeah, I mean, really soil, but I think how food should be grown in soil. And I think, you know, when you look at retirees, it's not, it doesn't make sense for them to grow food the way I'm growing food. If they're older in their bodies, you know, most, they didn't know mm -hmm. a lot about ergonomics like we did or we right. do. And, and so their bodies just are given up. So you have, uh, so raised beds are great. So you, you, mm -hmm. you create raised beds for ergonomics or. Um, and it's less weed, weed pressure and stuff like that. But I think, you know, if you want to have hobbies and, and mess with, you know, aquaponics and, and yeah, maybe you can produce more food, but I don't think that quality is as good as somebody that has like really good soil and you're allowing a plant to grow the way it is. And I think, I think it's, it's weird. Mm -hmm. We want to get on soapboxes and pretend like technology is evil or technology is the greatest thing ever. Right. But right. it's just it's a, not not either. It's neither of those. Yeah, it's just a tool. It's just mm -hmm. a tool that can make our lives easier. The, the problem, I think, is that in the end, and this is something I always work with people and just from working with people, especially coming from like birth and then into general health and then very specifically into brain health. The weirdest thing I encounter in our culture is that people have forgotten that they're a biological animal that lives on a biological planet and yes. you can't atomize you can't break it down this part does, like that part touches that part touches that part touches that part so if you have fundamentally screwed up your gut by being born via c-section and then being on antibiotics 10 times your brain is not functioning well already yeah right and so then you've got to go back and do not just work with your brain you have to work with your gut and that means working with everything or if you've learned to not move because we have a non-moving culture 
then you have to learn how to move again. And that actually will improve your brain health as well, but it'll improve your like exercise changes your gut bacteria, right? So like if your gut bacteria changes, it changes your brain and how your brain's operating. But if you get hit in the head, it also changes the gut bacteria. Like it's a it's an all-way system. There's not two ways. There's not three ways. It's an all-way system. And one of the things I always teach people um, to help with that, you know, and this is an overused and almost inappropriate word, but holistic, but it's also just true, like pieces of the whole, you know, there's this whole thing. Absolutely. That like brains, in terms of evolution, brains developed after bodies. So your body is actually the thing that's always informing your brain about what the brain needs to do. So that's a really funny thing of where your mind is what will heal your brain. It's what you do that determines your brain health and your brain health determines literally everything, everything else. But it's not, yeah, it's an interesting system. It's not just like when I tell people like, uh, like my boys rock climb, right? And actually you were talking about your friend learned or the person you knew learned to play guitar to heal his brain. I didn't know him, but I knew about him. Yeah. Right. So that like is the same thing. People are like, well, uh, you know, I had Aiden go to rock climbing to help heal his brain, but why? Like, okay, this is indoor rock climbing. It's very safe, whatever. Um, now he does more of the other stuff outside, but we're still very cautious because he still can't afford to hit his head again at this point. Um, but so he'll go in there and when you do bouldering, you're doing all this uh, body motion crossover so crossing over like uh like crawling movements crossing right over left left over right feet and having to think about where all four of your appendages are what they're doing is actually super good for the brain and it definitely helped him heal faster um there's this this thing where you're feeding that so what i was going to say is like the boys rock climb and so they know how to rock climb because they've done it a lot right so this knowledge exists in their brain that is rock climbing so it's it's a pattern so rock climbing doesn't exist in a single neuron right that whole idea mm-hmm. like it doesn't it doesn't exist anywhere where you could poke around and find it what it exists in is let's say i don't know you know let's just say 2000 neurons are involved in rock climbing it's probably way more than that um, but as soon as they start rock climbing all those neurons fire up together in an electrical pattern that says rock climbing right Absolutely. And that's where it exists. And so when you get a head injury, like it bumps on five of those neurons. Okay, well, you just lost a little part of that. And the brain doesn't necessarily repair neurons. It kind of just liquefies them and gets rid of them because it's way cheaper just to use other neurons because there's so many. Right. But Mm -hmm. that's why you have to relearn stuff. So you might have to take where those those neurons that were helping you do rock climbing are gone. You just keep going in there and doing it and your neurons will be like, oh, we need more help with this. Let's recruit some more of our friends to do this. Let's recruit some more until you have so many that you're expert, you know, that that electrical pattern fires up and that is rock climbing or the electrical pattern fires up that is reading or whatever it is and that it doesn't exist in one spot. Like when you do any activity, multiple areas of the brain fire up to help out. So it's in and of itself, it's a holistic organ that depends on all of it to work well. And I always found that really interesting is when I talk to people, it's like, I, like, I, I don't know, I call them, I don't know if this is appropriate, but like evolutionary obligates, like you are obligated by evolution. If you want to be healthy and be able to think it's like to move your body, to get sunlight, to sleep when it's dark, you know, to have friends and people who love you, 
like there are certain things like you have to have those things if you want to be like the best human being that you can be in this life, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. So that's kind of how I look at everything. And that in our culture, this, this thing we've forgotten that like bacteria run our health or, or that like our food has to be nutritious. Or that uh, we these need are, our sunlight. Like we need our sun's sunlight. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, I think that's like for me, like something that's interesting with the arrogance of man and science fiction is I don't think we ever could survive in this. I don't think Homo sapiens could ever survive not living on this planet. Like, I, I don't think. Oh, I don't think so either. Like, because I, I mean, to me, it's always like a view of we are part of the Earth's ecosystem. Like, we humans interact with it and like humans like it is there is a very anti-human outlook that a lot of hippies have like we're mm -hmm. killing our earth and everything i'm like we're look evil. man we're bad. the earth is going to take care of us if it needs to in my opinion and i i said this with hunter mm -hmm. like it's it's not to me the earth is a living organism like i i kind of get freaked. it is yeah and i i get well yeah, it has to be i mean otherwise right. we wouldn't have life <laughs> like we wouldn't be alive right. i mean if you break us down we're 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 you know we're thousands of cells interacting with each other that and then we 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 take on this larger form and you know in our whatever our sun is and and like so i i posted something um i posted something recently because there was the whole uh, people that actually thought we were living in the matrix thing that went on and oh. now now physicists say that we aren't go like go Thanks, figure guys. yeah and it's uh and it's like the uh to me, like something that's a lot more interesting is if people actually looked at how our solar system is moving and how it's not it's not the boring shit where our sun is sitting stationary and then we're just floating around gravitation. Right. Like our sun is moving and we are yeah. moving with the sun. And it's like we really are on a biological spaceship traveling through the universe. <laughs> And it's it's such a mind fuck that if we actually just focus, it's it's kind of like what we were talking about before um, with the news, and it's something that keeps going on, like just with the media, right? If the media didn't force this narrative of Donald Trump, and they just would report Donald Trump honestly, it would mm -hmm. be like, yeah, that guy's an asshole. I mean, you wouldn't, right, it wouldn't exactly. really change. We don't, you don't need to, you don't need to do much to make me think it. They're like overselling it, and right. I think we we like to, so we're like in this, we're in this world of overselling we're in this world mm. of over over wow, that's true yeah and it's like we we always try to make things more spectacular than what they are or more complicated than what they are um when you don't need to and it's it's maybe it's because we're flying around on this biological planet through an uninhabitable universe and underneath it all we know we're just like little tiny specks but we don't like that no well yeah i think that <laughs> that goes back to the arrogance of us i mean like Elephants yeah. can paint. Elephants communicate with one another yeah. with sounds that we can't hear. Um, but yeah, we we have dolphins in the channel yeah. uh, here, and uh, I was on a boat going out to the Channel Islands, and we went through a super pod of dolphins. It's like two or three thousand dolphins, and I'd never seen anything like that. So we were, you know, leaning over the boat and watching them jump. They were feeding, so they were going nuts, and. Uh, and it was so funny. They're just so intelligent and funny. And like they would come up and float on their side and like look at you. And like if you made funny faces or or tried to talk to them, 
you know, they would dive under and they'd come back and they'd want to check you out some more. And then they might jump around because they thought it was funny. And they're very obviously really intelligent, you yeah. know, and very much communicating. And, and there's no reason to think that everything, I mean, just growing plants. Yeah. It's like so much inherent intelligence. And I don't mean that in a spiritual way. I mean, I mean, just biological intelligence everywhere to think that somehow you know better than that. Well, exactly. It's, it goes to uh, like Mark Shepard. He does his thing uh, called the stun method with his plants. So sheer, total, utter neglect. And there's a rig reason why he does it. He does it because he wants to only keep the strong ones so then he can plant them. It's the same thing with um, when I'm huh. transplanting, I just go green side up because it's like, look, these plants want to live. They don't need me to baby them. All they need right. is water. And I think it's interesting because like I'll sell plants at the farmer's market that uh, Rich is propagating. They look beautiful. And people are like, what, what do I do with them? I'm like, just take them home and plant them green side up and don't mess right. with them. They're perennials. <laughs> They know how to live. They'll probably take over and you'll probably have to get rid of a bunch of them, but just don't, right. just don't do anything. But people will think they have to water it too much. They'll think they have to do this or that. And it's like, look, you're complicating it. If it looks like it's dying, water it. If it do doesn't, something. then don't fucking do anything. It, it's, it's, it's own it knows intelligence. What to do. It knows what to do. It knows yeah. what to do. Let well, did be, you know it, that's like a human baby and, and of course, primate babies, you know, when they're born, if you just lay them uh, on your belly, um, they, as long as the birth wasn't traumatic for them, as long as they're breathing like normally. Like a C-section or something? Well, you, you couldn't do it after a C-section. But after a normal birth um, and the baby's doing well, you can just lay the baby on the belly and they will inchworm their way up to the breast and latch themselves on. Hmm. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's, it, it's a slow process. You know, because they're just very trying to get a, used to like breathing air and the feel of air on their skin and light and all these things are new. But many babies will do that. It's very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I think. But it, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you have a will to want to live. And I think yeah. that, that to think that things in our planet that don't like it's like, well, we're we need to plant trees. It's like, man, I live in the Midwest that, that should be a American Serengeti. Like if I touched right. nothing, if I do nothing, the biggest weeds that I have are like maple trees, mulberry oh, really? trees, and most of the stuff is edible. And so it's like, it's huh. so it will, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, um, you know, so things want to live and the, the earth wants to take care of itself. I mean, you look at Detroit, Detroit, it's like there's trees growing in buildings. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like the silly Jurassic Park thing that, you know, nature finds right. a way. But it's, I think the other thing, like when I talk to people, I'm also like, uh, you know, evolution or nature, what, biology, whatever you want to call it, also doesn't have any personal care for you. No. So if you want to sit in front of the TV and eat Cheetos all the time, you're going to adapt to that mm. because that's what you're telling your body you need to do. And so you're, you know, the way you're going to become insulin resistant so that you don't die, you know, right now, but later <laughs> you will, you know, yeah, like that's what's going to happen. Or you could force yourself to adapt to something else. You know, nature doesn't give any fucks, no. you know, just like as many, like how many children could a grown human female bear? It's a lot. And so nature doesn't give any fucks. She wants you to make copies. Like you better exert some control over that, you know, if you want to have a longer, healthier life and, and kids that get what they need. Human you know? female what? What is that? Well, 
So human female, you know, we could bear a lot of children. Oh, yeah. Need be, right? Because yeah. nature doesn't care. No. If you take no precautions, you're going to make a lot of babies. Some of those babies are going to die. Some of them are going to live. And you are going to be worn out in the end. Because yeah. nature doesn't care. Evolution's about make more. We need more. You know, because yeah. life's tough. Life is tough. Know? And it's and nature's nature can be brutal. And yeah. uh, it doesn't really need man's assistance we don't need scientists to save the planet we just need to maybe pollute less i think that's something think that, that we would can be control. the key yeah yeah, that it, yeah yeah it's it's a funny ass thing or people are like well can you believe that there's now these plants that are roundup resistant it's like yeah of course i can believe yeah that. because what we do with agriculture just like is there's normal yeah there's germs that are antibiotic resistant now good luck with that yeah <laughs> Like, yeah, you don't want to catch one of those babies. Yeah, no, and I don't take antibiotics for that reason. I took them a lot when I was a kid, and then I found out that I remember I had a teacher that was smart, Mr. Van Arsdale. He said, "Yeah, I don't take those." He goes, "Did you know that your body will eventually stop? It will stop working for your body. So the more yeah. times you use them, when you actually need them, right? Uh, it it probably won't help you." So I was like, "Oh, that's that's interesting. I should probably stop doing these." Yeah, I managed to not take antibiotics for 20 years, and then two years ago, I got pneumonia somehow, and I I did take it. It worked right away, um, and then I'm still two years later working on the re remediation to my gut, though. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't terrible, but it was noticeable. So interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, we're at uh, we're at yeah. two hours and three minutes, Jenny, and we probably both have stuff to do. I gotta go harvest probably. some microgreens, <laughs> and you probably have like clients to uh, see and kids to many, to, many to things to do today. Pay attention to me too. It was great talking to you. If people so want good to, talking to you, Jerry. oh, thanks, Jenny. If people want to follow your work or people want to check out, um, you were saying, and we didn't even get to get into this. You you wrote an article about psychedelics. Oh, yeah. so magazine. You, I think it's on my website. Uh, so my website is Jennifer Aguilar. So it's spelled the traditional way, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R and then Aguilar, A-G-U-I-L-A-R.net. So that's my website. I have a blog on there and you can see like if I have events or talks or if I'm on a podcast or have an article out. So yeah, I had an article on um, the the past use of psychedelics kind of from a paleo perspective. Um, and then sort of looking at the modern use of them now. Um, and that was in paleo magazine and I have it on my blog now cause it's a couple months old. Um, but I write about various things. Mostly I've been working on finishing my book, um, the primal brain solution, which is going to come out in January. And actually I'm fortunate enough to be starting to work on a documentary with a producer and a director here on, on brain injury. Um, That's awesome. so yeah, it'll be really fun. Who knows when that'll come out or what will happen with that. Um, yeah, I'm doing that. And uh, we have a cool event coming up uh, via the MMA group um, that's based on this acronym FEISTY. Face it, evolution is smarter than you. Um, so there's there'll be some fun stuff with that too. Um, yeah, and then I work with private clients. Uh, I do one-on-one -on -one, um, assistance to people who, right now it's been mostly brain injury, but I do do general health stuff. Uh, people have ADHD uh, gut, gut bacteria imbalances, you know, problems with that. So, um, I do lifestyle health interventions, but I also, uh, help people who are going through like deep difficulty. That's something I don't really advertise a lot, but I end up with a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot more of those clients than, than I would expect. 
<clears throat> so recently I had a client who uh, had her spouse uh, committed suicide suddenly out of the blue unexpectedly. Um, and so I worked with, with that person um, to get through that moment uh, that seemed impossible. Um, so I, I do some of that as well. But yeah, it's all fun. Cool. Besides homeschooling and helping my husband. And, you you know, have some businesses. You do a lot of stuff. You live a very fulfilled stuff. life. And it's, I do. And I'm it's very, work. very fortunate. But it's also, like you said, it's by design. I chose yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't complain. No, I don't. Never. <laughs> I'm always, always grateful. I might complain once a week, maybe. Sometimes. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have the luxury. That's something nah. that um, you'll wish. Man, I remember there's this line in Gene Logsdon's book he wrote before he died. It was something his mom used to say. When you become older, you'll wish to have the luxury of a nervous breakdown. Or something like that, but you don't have that <laughs> don't have luxury. Time for that. Don't have time for that. Well, anyways, everyone, All thanks right. for listening. Check out Jenny's work, and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jenny. Check out her work. Um, she's doing some really cool stuff, especially in the field of uh, recovering major head trauma issues. Um, if you guys would, please go and support the show at patreon.com forward slash sample hour. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. It goes a long way for me. All I'm asking is $1 a month. So I appreciate that. Guys, go ahead and check out the sample hour discussion group as well. I've done absolutely nothing in there. My apologies. I just kind of threw it together because, um, yeah, it's something I've been meaning to do for a long time. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a great place for everyone to come together, talk shit, communicate, connect, whole nine yards. So, uh, anyways, if, if you guys can, uh, also check out our affiliates. So, naturesimagefarm.com. If you're in the market to buy any plants, you can save 10% off with code word sample and get free shipping. And also, newfarmsupply.com as well. Uh, use code word sample and save 10% and get free shipping. Okay, guys, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to bringing you more episodes soon.